Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. We are live on YouTube. This is episode 44 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host Dave Park. We are on tonight with our special guest here for the second time. You may recognize Jim West from episode seven, way back when we really didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> now, now we sort of know what we're doing. Um, Jim is a lifelong martial arts practitioner. He is a retired special forces warrant officer with extensive experience in South and Central America. He is a Gulf War veteran uh, and he's a good friend of mine. So Jim, Jim is many things in life uh, that we're going to get into in this show. He also has a new book out called A Mind for a Fight. You got the book, Jim? If you can show it off for us, please. I do have the book uh, right here. Okay. I read, I, I just finished the book last night. Uh, Dave is halfway through reading it. And I have to say, mm-hmm. it's really, really good. It is an introduction to Jim's fighting system called American Extension Fighting. Something he's been telling me about since I think the first time I met him. I don't even know how many years, what was that, like 2013, maybe? It's been, yeah, probably 2013, exactly, yeah. Can't believe about the, it. Same, the, same, the same meeting, same first time I ever met you, you told me about that this idea you had for a knife. <laughs> like, yeah, I got it. It's all up in my head, and, oh, and there it is. So was that, <laughs> was that the night we all hung out, or was it before that? It was before that. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it was hard to believe it was seven years ago. It's wild. Um, and I, I wish we could be doing this interview in person, but you know, the situation being what it is, we're all adapting and being as flexible as possible. So thank you for joining us tonight, Jim. I really appreciate it. No, anything for you guys. I, like, uh, you're also a very dear friend of mine as well. So if I, anything I can do to help support and also if, uh, any of my friends, cohorts, and all the rest of the folks. Just want to thank them for logging on today, you know, and uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope this, you know, is interesting for our viewers and the people who check it out later on the podcast and everything else, um, because we're going to talk about martial arts. We're going to talk about your background. Uh, we're going to talk about your military career. We're going to talk about the contents of the book that I, I was really impressed with. It was really well done. I'm not just saying that because you're a friend of mine. I think you... And uh, the gent that worked on the book with you, Justin, you guys just really did a terrific job with it. And it's got me really excited to see what your next project is going to be like, where are you going to take it after this, you know, this, because this book really is, it's kind of an introduction to the system. Yeah, well, it's more than a system. Uh, The system, you know, a system is uh, just that, you know, but uh, the book itself is, uh, 
it, it can be the underpinning, you know, architecture, the framework for virtually any system that's already out there uh, to take what they currently do. And there's a lot of good stuff out there, but it's very difficult and very seldom that you'll find one system that has everything in it. So there's a lot of gap filling and unifying structure. And one of the things within the book that makes that uh, easier to do is uh, we restructured the original technical fight principles written by Joe Lewis and Bruce Lee and those guys many, many, many years ago uh, to make it more digestible. Uh, like Royce Bartlett from uh, iHeartRadio, after we did our interview, he said, uh, yeah, Jim, you've, you've really done a great job. You, you've taken the cookies from the uh, from the top shelf and put them on the bottom shelf and made them uh, digestible. And that was a, that was a really important that uh, when I was working with Justin is that uh, we, they were pragmatic and so anybody could read it, but they're so layered that whether you're a beginner or if you've been you know, a seasoned fighter for many years or a grandmaster, you can take these layers and, and, and just continually grow uh, these principles uh, to help your teaching style, no matter what you do. Jim, when Dave and I were doing a little bit of prep for the show, we both kind of agreed that, you know, we should really start with the beginning, um, which is where your book starts with sort of your upbringing and how, you know, Jim West came to be, because I think that explains so much about both why you got interested in martial arts and, and why you joined the military and why you pursued some of the paths you did in life. Oh, well, you, you know, when I was young, I don't think, uh, we ever stayed in one house more than two years growing up. I mean, I, I think even today, a lot of people, you know, I love my mom. I love my dad. Even if they drink a lot and beat you around and do things, uh, we just interpret that as what love is supposed to be because as a child, you kind of brought into the world going, you know, that's just what's, what's that's, that's love, you know, uh, they beat your ass and lock you in your room. And uh, of course, we lived in uh, Georgia for many years as when I was a kid. And I had uh, three cousins that lived next door and two brothers that lived with me. And uh, they're all older. I was the youngest. And there were two girls in the mix, too. But I was, I was the youngest of all. Uh, of course, both my brothers and most of my cousins have all passed away. And, and they were pretty much all Green Berets as well, you know. Uh, and, uh, but, but as kids, they, we were rough, you know, they used to punish me a lot, you know, and uh, beat me around and uh, experiment with my body. <laughs> uh, I mean, I got my first set of stitches when I was 18 months old by being tossed through the back window of uh, the door in the house, you know, this, uh, while they were playing games. First time I ever got up on a bike without uh, training wheels, they shoved me into a ditch full of briar patches. And, and the stories are just endless, right? Uh, <clears throat> we were so, you know, I had a dirt road going from our cousin's house to our house. Of course, oh, yeah, about the, uh, it's about 10 or 11 years old or whatever, but we moved back to Virginia, Richmond, because that's where my grandfather's um, grandparents lived. And they were, they were kind of circling the drain, as my mother would say, they were getting ready to pass away. So we moved in with them as well. It was pretty crowded. My grandfather was a six foot eight German from Germany. And my grandmother was a, a Italian. So, so he was kind of rough. Now he's a blacksmith. And uh, if you weren't, didn't mind your manners or acted like a kid, he just slapped you around. And he, he was six foot eight. Uh, he was really just a hardcore guy. My dad was a very hardcore guy as well. He, he was in the Battle of the Bulge and sheet metal worker and 
iron workers, so, you know, and he used to bare knuckle box. And in fact, him and one of his war buddies used to have to drive 85 miles to find a bar that they weren't banned from, from fighting. So oh. <laughs> honestly, so, and my grandfather was a world champion wrestler, A.D. Holton, you can find him out there. So fighting's kind of been just a way of life. You know, it wasn't about doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It's just really, for me, it was surviving, especially being the smallest, because I always felt like I had something to prove. I, I even remember when I went to the first grade, these were kind of poor and uh, they were making fun of my shoes, got a hole in my shoes. So I got in a fight with these two guys and, you know, I got sent home the first day in the first grade. So I, I didn't just psychologically, I didn't think there was anything wrong with fighting. I just thought that's, uh, that was what you were supposed to do. And uh, I, I feel really lucky and truly blessed to even be here at 66 years old with you guys and a lot of friends and fans out there just listening, you know, just want to be a part of all this. And uh, because I wasn't always the friendly guy that you know here today, you know, which is yeah. a big part of the book. I mean, I, the, a lot of my karate buddies I grew up with, you know, it's like, you say I lived on the dark side because, you know, the old tradition and the respect and the discipline, you know, it was good while I was in the gym, but then I'd go out and drink and fight every night. And I, you know, whatever I learned in the gym, I tried to experiment with in the street. So, you know, to the point where we are today in the book, uh, I have a ton of experience, you know, and reality-based uh, situations coupled with a lot of technical expertise. So, you know, and then the military background. I, I think, you know, Jim, when I, when I ask other people about you who were in the military back in the seventies and eighties and into the nineties, you know, they remember in so many ways, I mean, no, no shit. They remember Jim West, the animal, you know, as one of the first things you told me, you, you know, that your older brother had told you when people see a green beret, they expect an animal. So you give them an animal. So you give them an animal. And I, I feel very fortunate though, that like the, the Jim West I know is the man. I, I got to know a different person and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for that in, in multiple ways. I'm glad I didn't get kicked through a railing at a bar somewhere and, yeah. and thrown into the grass. But I've also, no, I just am very glad that, you know, when I met you in life that, um, that I, I got to see the, the real person underneath. Well, I appreciate that, Jack. It means a lot because, you, you know, the, 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 the tragedy and the experiences that life can pass your way, even your way, you know, and, uh, and Dave's way. It's, it's, you know, we experience a lot of things, not just at home. The older you live, people around you pass away, they die. Uh, divorces, just tragic situations, you know, uh, come your way. And a lot of times they're uninvited. And, and you know, as, as combat veterans, you know, we've not only killed people, but we've seen a lot of people get killed. And, you know, we suffer from our own hidden injuries, right? And, uh, and uh, you know, actually it took the uh, death of my oldest son uh, a little more than 17 years ago to start the process that caused me to slow down and recoup everything and figure out, you know, what, what was really happening, you know, because for the next four or five years, I was feeling a lot of guilt and shame that, you know, because anybody that's been in combat, they probably have seen collateral damage, women and kids, and you might've done a few things you're not proud of as well. Right. Um, and I just felt like I was being punished for the next several years by a higher power. And, uh, and, uh, that, that's what actually led me to the VA. And I, for a long time, I wouldn't openly discuss my PTSD and all that, but, uh, actually you, you're a big catalyst as well. When you, got to helping me start writing on a book 
many years ago because writing has been a salvation for me to be able to write my thoughts in front of me without anybody judging me or, you know, it's just a good way to express yourself, good, bad, or indifferent. And, and anything you can get that out, you know, get it out of you is just better. Well, Jim, before, I think we're, we're jumping a little bit ahead yeah, before, so, so that people understand why you're saying what you're saying and why you've had these experiences. We got to like understand before all of that, you know, by the end of this interview, I think they'll understand uh, your words will have a lot more meaning. Um, can you tell us about, you know, what led you into the military and into special forces? I mean, you talked about how your brothers were in the military and, and then, you know, your introduction into martial arts. Actually, Jack, if you don't mind, Jim, before we get to that, there, you had some really formative moments, like in mm -hmm. your childhood, right? I mean, yeah. you were, you were conducting guerrilla warfare against your brothers by the time you were 10 years old. Uh. Right. Let's try. Let's try about five years old. Okay. Can you uh, tell us like a little bit, like uh, like what your sort of formative was, you know, or the formative thoughts around that, the booby traps you would set up, things like that, and then uh, in your book you mentioned um, the fight in high school. Uh, yeah. How that was very very formative for you, and then you're talking yeah, to yeah. the principal after that, and sort of the realization that you came to because of what he said. Yeah, that's those are very important, like you said, formative moments in my uh, youth. And uh, but but as as a young guy, when you say I was like doing terrorism as a child, and I don't mean that in a in a political way, right? Just uh, guerrilla warfare, basically. And uh, like my brothers would do bad things uh, always, constantly. They put me in a my my uncle bought a refrigerator. And they had the refrigerator box, and they made me sit in there, and they dragged it down the street for about. 100 meters before the bottom fell out on a motorcycle and uh, just tore me all up, you know? So, oh, and if, by the way, if you tell mom, we're just going to whoop your ass, tell her you got hit by a car, you know, I, you know, they, they would make me climb trees and they would cut the tree down. I'd have to fall with the tree. They, they threw me in quicksand, honestly. And wait till I'm almost up to about here, tug me out, just, just, just constantly terrorizing me. And I would do things, you know, like I would, I would find a hammer and a nail and a piece of wood and I'd drive nails through the wood and I would, go out there and bury it in the yard where I knew they were playing and the leaves. And so I was always setting booby traps and snares so that hopefully they would step on them, fall on them. Just, and they did. I mean, there was, there were some injuries because of my, my uh, youthful guerrilla warfare. Days. <laughs> <laughs> were, were the traps meant to maim, to kill, to annoy? Like, did, think, you, did you know at that time what you were trying to do? No, it was not so much killing or maiming. I just wanted to hurt them. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they'd hurt you, you want to get them back. Yeah, I just wanted to hurt them. Uh, you know, they uh, set me up one time. They took all the pins out of my mother's pin cushion and put buried them all in, you know, two hundred pins in a blanket. And then they say, "Hey, hey we're playing airborne. Jump off there!" And 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 I jump off, and it's yeah, I get felt wow. like I jumped in the nettle. You know, it's just a nonstop as a child. Were you, were you smarter than they were? I mean, you were younger, so did you did you find that you had to be craftier? I, I, there's a difference between crafty and smarter. You know, I, I mean, yeah. Well, you, you know, sometimes you can be extremely smart and uneducated, and uh, you you know, I I think craft is a hand-me-down tool. You know, because 
you know, every time we see people do something, we watch a futuristic movie thing, we, you know, we're looking at that movie, especially with our, you know, our, our personal bloodline, you know, and experience. And we're going, oh, I'll try that, you know. So <laughs> we, we learn from our own mistakes and we learn from other people's as well, you know, not just, not just the lagging indicators, but the leading indicators, you know, what they do well. Because, you know, when they're not around, I'd always rehearse and practice, you know, just, uh, and I started doing that early in life. And, and I'd really like to hear about your high school experience. And the reason is, is because whether we're talking about a bar fight, self-defense, you know, a mugger uh, or a combat, I think that one of the things that's often overlooked is the mentality of that, that we're carrying around. And a lot of people freeze in those situations because they, they're completely unprepared for it. Like the reality hits them and their, their mind goes into this, is this real? Is this happening? How much danger am I in? You know, all these different things. So that we get this stutter step in, in our head, but you had this experience in high school that you mentioned in your book that was very formative for you. Yeah, well, I had a lot of experience and, you know, the people that are close to our age will understand more so than uh, maybe a lot of the younger millennial guys, because uh, I'm a whole lot of things, but I'm clearly not a racist, you know, my, one of my ch children's part Japanese, one's part Spanish, you know, so, uh, you know, my best friends are Anthony Bradley, the, you know, a lot, I, I spent a lot of time in boxing gyms when I was young and have a lot of Afro-American friends, you know, so, you know, I got you guys, you know, I got warriors over here too. So, you know, all ages, I don't discriminate, you know, if a person's an asshole, he's an asshole, you know, no matter what. And if he's not, then uh, we can uh, get along, you know, but uh, when, I, when I was going to high school, I, I guess I was leading into uh you know, the old Martin Luther King days and, you know, everything was about equal rights and uh, peaceful protest, unlike the ones that are going on today in Minnesota. And, and they were, you know, so uh, I, I think it's anybody has a right to protest peacefully, but it wasn't that way always. And uh, then they started forced integration or what they call busing back in the day, because you'd have to get on a bus and get trans, you know, get up earlier, miss your breakfast, go halfway across town and going to a crowd of people, whether they're white or black or Chinese, it didn't matter. You didn't know who they were. You didn't know the neighborhood and you're clearly not happy. And I actually bounced to three high schools, but the first year, my ninth year, uh, you know, the, the racial uh, imbalance was probably 1500 Afro-Americans, about 150 white guys. Uh, we got busted, which is fine with me. I didn't care. I never did care. Uh, when we were, very young living in Georgia. I used to literally go out to the farms and the cotton fields and the, you know, my mom owned the record store and Sam and Dave and, you know, James Brown, they, they're all from Milledgeville, Macon, Georgia area. And, you know, so it, it, we didn't think about color in those days, honestly, but, but until I got into the ninth grade and there seemed to be a lot of tension, you know, I guess they call that racial tension, but I think it's just people were pissed off, not, being in the neighborhood or close to their home, taken out of the routine, you know? So uh, uh, one day uh, a, a friend of mine, Spence and I were walking, the school was, had multiple pieces and they had a, a bridge walkway on the second floor between two sections and we're just walking and there's a cluster of Afro-Americans, a cluster, it could have been 25, 50 or hundred because it was just a big crowd, uh, like they're going to a show. And uh, it was winter time, and back in those days, you know, everybody was trying to be stylish with the maxi coats and all that good stuff, you know. So you can hide a lot of weapons there, right? Um, 
So anyway, uh, they jumped on us. They grabbed Spence. He tried to fight back. He was a scrappy little Irish guy. And they actually literally threw him out the window out to the second floor. And how he avoided breaking a lot of bones and stuff is beyond me. He actually ended up okay, a couple of bruises and stuff. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today and a couple sore joints, but uh, they were coming after me and I had no plan. And next thing you know, I was encircled. So I dove on the floor cause I was starting to get beat up and they were, had the old radiators with the lead paint. Then you know? uh, I grabbed the, the, the piping at the bottom and I'm holding on with my dear life. And uh, they're starting to kick me and pull at me and I could feel that pipe shaking. So I just pulled that. You don't want to get thrown out the window, right? I mean, you're no, I didn't want to. That was exactly right. I, yeah. I, 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 I don't mind fighting. I didn't want to get tossed out the window. And uh, so the, that pipe is old, you know, kind of corroded and rusty. It, it broke loose. So I started cracking a few shins. And I, about this time, I didn't really have a plan. I was just going nuts. And uh, a gun goes off. Boom. And I'm like, holy crap. Everybody just took off running. So that was like a Thursday or Friday. Anyway, I came back to school Monday and I uh, went to my first period class. Jim, you got to go to the principal's office. Okay. Uh, what's this all about? And find out when you get there. So I go down there, sit and wait. And our principal was a former athlete, football player, really big Afro-American gentleman, and uh, taught me a, a life lesson that was just, you know, it, it lives with me even to this day, not just for me, but when I train other people to, to defend themselves, you know, and he brought me in and says, you know, you know, it's not that you did anything wrong uh, in this situation, but whenever we have a a violent act or incident occur, we send everybody home for a cooling down period for three days. And so we're suspending you for three days, which is kind of hard to tell my mom because I get worse ass whooping at home than, <laughs> than at school. Uh, and and he, he continued to talk to me. He says, uh, have you ever heard of the dozens? I said, no, I don't what's the dozens it's a game they said a lot of a lot of black youth these days they'll play like how they one up you're like your mom your mama wears combat boots and oh your mama does something you know they just kind of one up and a one down on each other just constantly busting each other chops right so uh he says and, and he says i he said you did the right thing but i'm not encouraging you to fight i said what are you talking about he goes you're right to fight back he says Young Afro-American, or he's caught said blacks these days, you know, teenagers. He said, by the time they're 18 years old, they probably had a hundred fights. He said, they probably lost 50 of them. And there's no difference to them between winning and losing. Guaranteed, you're going to get a fight. And if you don't fight back, they're not going to respect you. And every time they see you, 
they're going to want more, you know, like if they ask you for a nickel today, next time they want a dime and the next time they want a quarter, I call it nickel dime theory. Right. But uh, he says, if you fight back, even if you lose, you're going to earn their respect, you know? So uh, that, that was a lifelong lesson that, that uh, like I said, I feel very blessed just to be here today. Cause if you piss off enough people, especially in today's climate goes somebody's gonna sneak up on you and shoot you but uh so i, I you know, i've taken these those all those lessons and kind of compiled them with everything else i've learned through the martial arts industry and the military and just training in general and just uh starting to apply and give back now so well i i want to i want to just quote you real quick from your book because what you said in your book uh you said from that day forward i accepted that fighting was not just a part of life but a way of life the difference, in fact, between having a life at all and being put down in the street. Um, and then you said, uh, every day I fully expect to come across someone who intends to visit harm on me. If that's the case, they're in for a surprise. So that, whether it was in the military, in combat, in in hand-to-hand, -hand, in the street or whatever. Today, that, sitting in my apartment. Yeah, that became your sort of driving force, right? It, it Honest to God, I mean, I'm a different person, Jack. I'm a lot uh, more sociable and charismatic nowadays, <laughs> right? But, uh, you know, I can't walk down the street, drive drive down the highway without analyzing size and people up, looking for the threat, looking for the hands, watching their direction of movement. You know, just it's, it's on and on and on. If I go into a store, stuff, I, I look around pathways, aisles. If I see like a jam, like a basket in the grocery, I just go down another aisle. It's just ingrained built in it, it it is a way of life with me and certain things you know those spots may fade but they never go away uh, and even today just you know half in just with just with my friends at work and stuff you know because now i'm 66 years old i'm not a star athlete like i was when i was on the combat dive teams and stuff but uh i i'm, I'm i can guarantee you a handful you know because uh it, you, you know, you, you are who you are. Uh, I mean, yeah. I know you as well. And uh, you, you, you're very similar in a lot of respects, you know. I appreciate it. So, so okay, Jim, can you tell us then about, you know, uh, how you got into special forces and, you know, your introduction into martial arts? Because I, I remember, was it, was it when you were stationed in Germany before you went to SF? Yeah. Because I was, you know, catch wrestling and, you know, slap boxing, street boxing, and street fighting, and you know, and uh, actually, when I joined the army, it was funny. I, by the time I got to my third high school, it was a, a Catholic military uh, academy in, in Richmond, Virginia, and I was in the eleventh grade, and I'd already failed a grade, and uh, just constantly try. I had earned so many demerits by this time. <laughs> uh, halfway through the year, I was seventeen years old, and my mom came in to speak to Father Adrian, and we're sitting down and. They're, they're having this conversation like I'm not even in the room about in order to graduate, I'm going to have to stay after school. I got to join the team. I got to clean the bathrooms. I've got to work off all these demerits. I got to shovel snow. And they, they're plotting my life out here in, way, in terms that I disagree with. And I looked at my mom and I said, excuse, I said, F that. I, I don't want to curse, right? So I said, F that. And she goes, what? I said, and my brothers, listen, and cousins, when they were all in Vietnam and I went going to high school and I come home, me and my sister, 
and and every night she's sitting there drinking and watching TV. Remember, they didn't have telephones, they didn't have radios, they didn't have ways to communicate, you know. And, and like you're watching a news broadcast where 58 Americans were killed and wonder wonder why your mom drank so much every day of the every day of the week when they hit the news they had three channels wondering if her kids have been killed, you know, because uh you know, and, and sometimes were rough, you know, but I, 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 so, you know, I, and I, I was just sitting around and, and it was kind of always in the back of my mind. I said, you know, I, when my brothers all left me alone at home with my sister, I'm like, you know, I got to join the army one day. So I'd been thinking about it a bit that as soon as I could, I would join because I honest to God, my rationale was irrational. I just said, I refused to be sitting at a bar like my parents one day, listening to my brothers and cousins talk about war and not have my own war story. So it, it was just kind of sinking in. And then at this moment, while they were debating about how I was going to work off all of these demerits, I said, mom, F that. She goes, what, what'd you say? I said, can I join the army? She goes, yep. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Father Adrian. We're out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Got in the car, drove down to the uh, replacement station <laughs> in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, as the Air Force Army Marines all in one linear structure and the Air Force guys up there and I walked in the first door and the first thing out of his mouth, you have your, uh, now remember Vietnam's still going on, so they were taking anything, you know. Uh, do you have your uh, high school diploma? No, nope, we can't join the Air Force. Navy was next. High school diploma? No, nope, can't join. And then the Army and the Marines are right there. And I was looking at the Marine door and the Army guy comes out and just pulls me in. And I said, look, I don't have a high school diploma. He says, we're giving GEDs in the back room. So I went back, <laughs> took a GED test and just crushed it. I mean, crushed it. So they went home. I, I literally had the clothes on my back, a bag, lunch, a toothbrush. Got on, went back down in you know, it was eight or nine o'clock at night. I don't even remember. We got on a bus. It was January 10th, 1972, boom, right to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. We get there at two or three in the morning, get off the bus. All of the drill instructors back then were all the way from World War II, Korean, Vietnam, former POWs, Purple Heart, you know, wounded in war. And they wanted to make sure that you didn't uh, get wounded or you came back alive. So back then, physical hazing was not only illegal, it was highly encouraged. So it was just a eye-opening experience. And I was really surprised I made it because I was undernourished. I weighed 120, 25 pounds. You know, I, I, I wasn't, you know, real savvy about people. And, you know, like I said, I got in a fight in the first grade because me and people just didn't always get along that well. Wasn't a great team player. And, uh, you know, I had one thing. I just refused to go home. So whatever they threw my way, I took, you know, and I, that's that's how I joined the Army. And then uh, – we, you know, you didn't have weekends off, you own private rooms. And, you know, back then you had 30 man open bays and six crappers and six urinals and six showers and nothing but cold water and, you know, 17 degrees outside and ice on the porch. That's where the, you know, asses and elbows come in. <laughs> they didn't have partitions in the bathrooms or anything. So it was truly knees and elbows uh, in 10 minutes to get in and out of everything. So anyway, we graduated. I still had no direction. And there were these two guys from West Virginia, Clark and Harless. And uh, they were saying, so which one of you guys are going to be a, you know, a tanker? Which one of you guys are going to be an infantry guy? Which one, you know, you know, 
they were asking about what they're going to be, right? So uh, they um, Clark leans over and goes, you know, if you go to jump school, you get an extra $55. And I'm like, what? Yeah, $55. And our base pay back then was paid in cash over by paymaster. It was 150 bucks a month. <laughs> 55 bucks a lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, anybody want to go to jump school? Yep. <laughs> so we're on a bus going to jump school. And so I got, you know, my brothers would just encourage me to get to Fort Bragg and they said they would help me to get into special forces. Well, the lack of a high school diploma kept me out of special forces then also. So I spent time in the 82nd, then I re-enlisted and went to Germany. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, and while I was in Germany, I, I went back to school and got my high school diploma at night. So, you know, it was the first step. And I... I just wasn't fighting wars and I wasn't doing the things I wanted to do, but I did meet uh, Ronald McKenzie from Landover, Maryland. He was the most wicked Tai Chi Chuan Wushu stylist I've ever met. And uh, he appreciated what I brought to class and never charged me for a lesson. Oddly enough, I'm a grandmaster today and I've never paid for a karate lesson in my entire life because of the intensity that I brought to the training and the, and discipline, even though it lacked later in life. But uh he, he, he trained me a lot of nice stuff that, uh, and, and, and back then I used to watch all the Bruce Lee movies and learn every word, every move and just, you know, and, uh, in 1975, I went to compete in the, uh, uh, European internationals in Berlin. I'm sharing an image on the screen right oh, now. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's his man right there. He was, uh, from the Dominican Republic, Japanese styles, badass guy. And, and, and uh, this is and top doing this uh, flying roundhouse kick here, uh, looking like Chuck Norris. That is a young Jim West. That's me. <laughs> well, we used to train pretty hard. Notice there's no pads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they came out later. You know, back in the old <laughs> days, it was all in the old days, all bare knuckle, you know. And, uh, you know, I used to do push ups and ice and, you know, all kinds of weird things. But, uh, but uh, so I decided to get out of the army, take a break. And, uh, it's, like 75, 76. And I wanted to, I wanted to fight pro and do all those good things. So, uh, I went back to Richmond, Virginia. I was driving around looking for a place to train and, and I found this, uh, place that says American open style karate. And it was a little dump. It, it wasn't like a big gym or anything and, or proper dojo. And I walk in there and these guys, they weren't wearing karate geese and all they had on cut off shorts t-tops and they were going to war i mean they were killing each other and they said the guys like nanny wilson my next trainer he's like would you like to train with us yeah he said put your stuff on so i'm stretching out and they started ragging on me about uh being like bill wallace superfoot wallace because i could have good flexibility and great kicks and uh they gloved me up put me in there with this guy and he's just beating the snot out of me you know and I, he knocked me down i'm trying to get up and he's still kicking and hitting me so i got so aggravated i came up swinging like a street fight and danny's broken up 
<laughs> excuse me. And, uh, but anyway, the guy that I was sparring with there, his name is Keith Hayflick. He, he's deceased now. He died in a, he got shot to death in uh, 1985 in a tragic event. But uh, he was one of the meanest and more, most competent American open style karate guys that you'll ever meet anywhere, you know? Uh, and uh, I had no idea. I just walked in virtually off the street and day one, uh, it was, it was a wake up, but you know, I just had to have more. And, uh, so that, that, that was my introduction there. But, uh, so I was trying to fight. I got disqualified out of a couple of fights and, and, you know, you wait two or three months to get a fight and you make 500 bucks. I wasn't making a living. So I started working with Keith at night doing some security for some questionable activities. And, uh, uh, one night I got, uh, bounced around by a bunch of Richmond's finest, uh, undercover and cops, you know, and, uh, I, I thought right then and there before this gets any deeper, I need to, uh, do something more important with my life. So I read, I talked to my brothers. I went back in the army once again, sort of repeats itself, get to Fort Bragg. We'll get you in special forces. So they, they, I just volunteered for combo. They sent me to combo school back to the 82nd airborne. This is my second trip to the 82nd. Uh, first time was infantry. Second time was a combo guy. And, uh, I got picked up for selection and I had a high school diploma. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, the rest is history, right? So uh, Jim, ahead, at, Oh, sorry, Jim, at th this point, you know, you had, you had done some training, you, you trained in Tai Chi and Wushu, which are, you know, Chinese styles and, uh, you know, and then the, uh, you say American, American karate. American open style karate. It's basically the foundation for kickboxing. Okay. So. And, and that was in 75, you say? 76, 75, 76. 76 yeah. So Enter the Dragon come out. Bruce Lee was known. Chuck Morris was kind of known. Well, I mean, uh, Bob Arno, these people. Did you know of these people? Were you trying to emulate them? Were you seeking out that kind of instruction? Or were you just oh yeah around you? I wanted all I could get. You know, I had what I had. And it was so localized. But I stayed in touch with my original instructor and he had moved to California to try to get into Hollywood uh you know working out with a guy named Douglas Wong who's an amazing guy he's still alive today and uh so in 76 I, I flew out there and I fought in the uh, Los Angeles International Championship Ed Parker stuff and you know to meet all those guys I met a lot of a lot of those guys plus I met a lot of them in, in the Berlin uh, European Championships Bill Wallace was there Heidi Ochai I mean I got tips and trades and trained amazing human beings i did get disqualified in my first fight in the in, a, in the uh internet in the los angeles internationals out there but uh, that's where you can kick to the body and punch the body but not to the face and uh, the guy this guy who was sharp he jumps up pow, front kicks me in the gut and i lean forward cracked him in the chin and dropped him and said, oh, you're out of here you know I said, man, I just bought all this, spent all this money to come here and I get a second chance. Now you got to follow the rules. Oh yeah. I wasn't good at that. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was uh, trying to emulate them, imitate them, every move, every, I studied everything I could about fighting every, every, every body motion. Uh, so Jim, while you were, you were in special forces, you'd made it through that whole crucible. And I mean, back in those days, it really was a, a crucible. I mean, Fort McCall was not what it is today. Now it's yeah. like a, now it's like a four-star resort out there. Um, but back in those days, I mean, you guys had like World War II huts, uh, World War II tents, <laughs> and that was about it, right? Um, I was wondering if you could tell the story 
about the GB club. And I think it's very interesting on two levels. That's a, that's a story that's related in your book and there's some lessons to be learned about street brawling in there. But it also, that the epilogue to that story is kind of how you came up on the CIA's radar and got yourself recruited for some missions down to Central America. Well, it's my lack of political correctness that drives me through life because, you know, if you don't ask, you don't know. And uh, you can't be afraid of living or, or at least trying. But uh, we, we had gone to the uh, uh, Greenbrae Sport Parachute Club, the GB Club, uh, when it was over there by Womack Army Hospital. And it was another World War II building, you know, it had a flight of steps going up front. It was in December 28th, actually, 83 was 80, 80, uh, 83, 83. And, uh, there was a lot of ice and dew outside on the grass. That's kind of interesting. And I was sitting around guys and one of the guys was getting ready to, uh, he'd been accepted into the, the Intel part of Delta, but he's also, a an E seven on the E eight list to be promoted. And, uh, and I was there with my, uh, first father-in-law, uh, Moses Flores and, He's an amazing individual as well. He's still alive today. He's lost his memory and all that, but he's almost a hundred years old. Wow. Amazing, amazing guy, you know, but, uh, um, so we were sitting there, about eight or nine of us just in a, you know, all the chairs kind of circled and drinking and telling war stories. And, uh, this one guy, Dennis, uh, I'll leave his last name out, but his wife decided to go to the bar and get us, um, uh, around the beer ask everybody what they wanted. She walks up to the bar and they're kind of over my shoulder. You know, I wasn't facing the direction and there are a couple of guys at the bar. I didn't know who they were. And, uh, about five or 10 minutes go by and, uh, Dennis goes. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. I was taking her so long with those beers. Let me go check on her. And she's standing there, the beers are on the end of the bar, and she's conversing with some guy. And so Dennis walks over there, and I don't know what exactly was said. They turn face to face, kind of look back, you know, and this guy whips out a big eight-inch blade and stabs Dennis right through the stomach. Ooh. And uh, it's amazing because here I am in a room full of Green Berets, <laughs> combat vet soldiers, you know, and uh, it was like you know, Moses' part in the scene. Nobody did anything, but instantaneously, I had no plan. I'm one of those guys that, like, will run into the fire. Uh, I, I just jumped up and I had a it's upstairs. Actually, I have the same jacket today. It just doesn't fit the same. I have a brown leather jacket. And I, I, had, I know that when there's knives, we used to practice, you know, wrapping your wrist. And I'm, I've got all these wrap my wrist do this. I have I could protect myself. I grabbed my jacket. I ran over there. And his back was partially to me. He's like at an angle. And at this point, when I get there, he stabs Dennis a second time. And he actually ends up hitting two arteries. And, uh, I put my hand on his shoulder to get him away from him. And as I turned him around with no plan, uh, instead of trying to wrap my wrists and all that, I just took my jacket and threw it up on top of his head. Cause I think my, my, my instincts were working more than my thinking. Cause I believe that if you're thinking to fight, you're never going to win a fight. It has to be intuitive 
at best instinctive, you know, and instinct is something that comes natural, you know, but or through upbringing. But anyway, I threw that jacket on his head, turns around, instead of trying to stab him, he's trying to get the jacket off of his head. So I, you know, rolled his ankle, grabbed him, Russian arm barred him, put him on the ground. I started, you know, putting pressure on his arm. He was face down. Moses kicks the knife out of his hand, throws it up on a pool table. Boom, done. Start getting up. Somebody, and we're walking back over there. Grabbing, he's got a knife. He's got a knife. And I'm thinking, we got the knife. I looked at the pool table and the knife was still on the pool table. Look back and this jackass had a second knife and he's going at it again. So I, I, I do a lot of what you call pushing and punching as push like i'll push and hit because I, I got one direction you know it's generally straight up straight ahead and uh if i if i'm not in range and at least for a good strong over or if i'm scared because he had that knife i just i pushed him out of range bang hit him backed him into the wall and i kept hitting him and uh he wouldn't go down i actually hit him so hard that his head went into the uh had that uh, wood panel it actually cracked the wood panel boom kind of caught him with a sweep, took another arm bar, got him down. Uh, he was in a little worse shape this time, so I thought we we're good. And uh, all of a sudden, he, he guy gets up and he's got a third knife. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. So I had cowboy boots and whop, I just kicked him right out the front door, right down the steps and onto the <laughs> sidewalk and, and did my best PLF effort, jumped off the stairs, landed on him, and started doing a tap dance. I mean, I literally crushed his head broke all of his ribs, twisting, turning. I mean, the guy was hooked up to a kidney machine for a couple of weeks. That's how bad I beat him. But uh, I even took him at one point. When I looked at the corner, I seen lights like an uh, ambulance or cop. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to get arrested at the corner. And I'm going, Christ. So I literally spread his legs open, face down, and kicked him in the groin twice just to see how far I could slide him across that nice icy grass. Then I ran back inside and one of these guys was allegedly a medic. They had Dennis sitting in a chair. I couldn't tell what they were As doing. Trying to stop. Now. Yeah. And I, I ran up behind him, kicked the uh, legs out of the chair, put my underhooks under uh, Dennis's arms and laid him on the floor. I said, you elevate his feet, treat him for shock, stop the bleeding. I'm out of here. And Dennis will tell you today. I mean, we have actually reconnected recently. Uh, and, and he, he's a very thankful guy. He's a good guy. Uh, you know, bad things happen to good people all the time. Right. But, uh, if, if it weren't for me, he would absolutely just be dead, you know? So, um, I spent, he, I spent a couple of weeks in jail because he, he didn't want to have an alcohol related incident and screw up his promotion and opportunities to go to, to Delta. So once he got promoted and accepted, uh, he told his side of the story to the cops. They released me, but when I went, you know, pending further investigation. So they sent me back to the unit. And the first thing a Sergeant major tells me is you're non-deployable. So what, what for? Yeah. I do what we do. Right. And, uh, okay. So they put me on, uh, you know, the guard duty, you know, like, uh, OD or whatever it is over at the battalion headquarters. Got staff duty. Yes. You, you pull the doors and you go in there and you sit all night and you walk around and, do a little security checks and fill out the log. I'm sitting there waiting on uh, Sergeant Major Commanders back in the office. And I'm like, God, these guys got to go. So I can go to sleep, man. You know, and uh, they just wouldn't leave. All of a sudden, there's some knocking on the door, and I go answer the door, and these suits are at the door. And here's see Sergeant Major. And so I walk him back and introduce him. He told me to close the door and get out of there. 
So I sat down and once again, my spider senses were tingling. They had typewriters. So I typed up a real quick resume. I speak languages. I'm a combat vet. I do this, you know, whatever. I have two or three MOSs. And uh, I take it back there and I knocked on the door and I just handed it to one of the guys in the suits. And Sergeant Major says, get the F out of my office. I'll deal with you later. Okay. So I'm sitting there and then an hour later or so, they all go traipsing out. I lock the door. Sergeant Major gives me this very ugly look. And then when they leave. Monday morning, we're sitting in formation. They called me out of formation. Oh, before Monday morning, what happened was uh, after they left about an hour later, there's a, another knock on the door. And uh, I opened the door and the suits came back without the uh, commanders and the sergeant majors. And uh, they said, look, uh, we've got some top secret missions coming up. Can't tell you anything about them, but you're going to get some orders and you're going to go to Tyson's Corner. And they even told me when they're going to put you in a hotel. Don't do anything stupid because they got microphones in the TV channel changers and all that stuff. So they're going to be watching you every move, filming you, listening to you. Just go up there and mind your own business. But, uh, yeah, you have to go through some training and, you know, some uh, verification. But uh, we want you, we, you know, we like your attitude. I said, wow, okay. And uh, they start to leave. And the guy turns around and says, Mr. West. I said, yes, sir. He goes, do me a favor when you get up the corner. I said, what's that? He goes, don't bullshit those guys like you just did us. I said, All right. <laughs> so I ended up getting a. What year was this, Jim? Well, 83. Uh, that might have probably been 84 because, or right north the end of 83, because, you know, the uh, the fight was on uh, December 28th of 1983. So I'd say it's the beginning of 84, like second, third week of January. And you said in your, you wrote in your resume, your combat experience. What, what had your combat experience been at, at this point? At that point, uh, I didn't really have any real combat experience. I was running some patrol, but that never been in a firefight. So I kind of, you know, they knew I bullshitted them, you know? Yeah. And that's why I said, we don't, you know, don't, uh, don't bullshit us, them just like you did us. Yeah. But, but they love my attitude. I was like, good. And, and Tyson's Corner is spook central down in Washington, D.C. Uh, and that's where they went down. And what do you have to take a polygraph and an interview and all that? Yeah, you got to. Yeah, you had to take a polygraph. Uh, you know, they establish a baseline, go through the polygraph. Then you got to go down to the range. You got to requalify shooting and all that good stuff. And uh, then you got to go through uh, meet with the other contractors and, and then they send you through some training because we were actually originally down, sent down there to train uh, hostage rescue and counterinsurgency commandos and stuff. So that with the hostage rescue and also, uh, you know, this, was, this was down in uh, Honduras. Yeah. That's where it was. And so, yeah, they have these COE, Commandos Operaciones Especiales. There's, they're very well trained. You've read some of my articles. Uh, I often say that, you know, uh, politically speaking, the people that come here uh, undocumented illegally, uh, like MS-13 and, and such, uh, I always tell you there's some very bad boys because a lot of those guys due to conscripts and stuff, they're pulled off the street, trained, given some military training that we typically are the trainers. And I can tell you, these guys are very, very well schooled and not afraid, and they don't think like the typical American. They're not worried about hurting you or killing you, you know, so. 
that's all about the money but uh yeah well it, it's interesting because <clears throat> in the beginning of your book uh you talk about coming from poverty and that and that like the, the challenges that you had in high school and with uh, like the desegregation was less about race for, for, the, for, for everybody involved and more about everybody was poor, everybody was angry. It was like the seething, boiling anger. So everybody fought for every scrap they had and you either fought people who were different than you or you fought people who were the exact same as you, right? Yeah. Um, so when you talk about these forces in Honduras, and you say that they just don't care. I mean, they're coming from poverty too. Oh, very, very, very. Poverty. So, so violence, unlike people who grew up in a middle-class world where, you know, you invite each other out to the football field or the parking lot after class for, you know, for a fight that everybody's watching, right? This, this well-planned kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, when, when you come from any culture that, that tends to, be impoverished violence becomes a way of life and and the things that you're willing to do or capable of doing um because of that are are just much different than somebody who comes from a more uh, privileged background i was i was training a a guy for the ufc back when uh stevie graham You've, you've seen him before he's a at the time he bench pressed 600 pounds. He worked squat reps was 740, played football for Fayetteville state, uh, just a monster athlete, you know? And, uh, when I was getting ready for the UFC, I had trouble finding some stand up fighters for him, you know, because he's just a beast. And he, I said, do you know anybody you can bring in? He brought in some of his buddies and, uh, his buddy goes off on him. I mean, they were like, two animals. I'm like, Holy crap. So when we finished, after we finished training, I asked his partner, I said, so you got a little boxing experience, right? And he goes, no. I was like, well, you did a pretty damn good job for not having any experiences. He said, dude, let me tell you something. I'm poor. He said, poor people are angry. <laughs> 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 you know, and I think that kind of sums it up a little bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> poor people are angry. Maybe that's a t-shirt, right? <laughs> it, and it's fair, you know? I mean, and you talked yeah. about that in the beginning of your book, like, be, People who are scrapping every day, they have less food, less this, less that. They they have a low seething anger that's always present that somebody who has, you know, money in the bank d- does not deal with. So they already have sort of a fighting mentality. Yeah. And honestly, that'll come out in a real fight. You know, in my book, you always hear me use the term real fight. Yeah, I replace the street fight, any fight. But, you know, a person that's not conditioned either by life circumstances or proper training somewhere, uh, no matter how skillful they may be, uh, they, once the water gets deep, you know, I don't think a lot of them have what it takes to survive, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one of the things where I'm at today psychologically is, you know, it's, the, it's not about fighting as much as the mental preparation for survival, you know, and, and how do you get there? You know, obviously there's a lot of stuff you got to learn along the way, but uh, it's getting that mind adjusted, right? As fast as you can. So not to derail too much from the CI story, but we're kind of on this and, you know, you cover the mentality a lot in your book. Like you stress how important that is, how, and that, because you talk about this linear development of technical ability, mentality, and uh, uh, psychological, it's psychological. 
And you know, you say that they're, they're linear and they're asymmetrical. They're not always growing at the same rate. So somebody can go in and train BJJ or train Muay Thai or train all these different things, but still not have that psychological edge where somebody who does have that psychological edge may have no training whatsoever and just sort of, you know, destroy. How does somebody develop that, that that is not in, you know, that didn't grow up that way or is not in life-threatening situations? I have a series of different drills uh, and basically they're, I would say reactionary drills. I do what you call inside out training. Uh, most of that linear training is kind of a lean principle where they push you through the training. So, you know, the goal is to be a black belt or whatever your goal is. You got to go through these steps and goals with the hopes and idea that you're going to develop the self-confidence that goes with it. Then you go out in the street and get your ass whooped. You know, uh, I, I tend to look at it like a, 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 like in a construction industry. If you, you suddenly hit the lottery tomorrow and you want to build this very elaborate home, you get an artist rendition. So everybody gets to see that rendition before they, before they start building. So as you get closer to the end, you know, I forgot there's a curb here, a tree there, a plant. You got to see that in the, the end of it first. So I introduced people immediately to the, uh, what it's supposed to look like and feel like. Now, now that's not to scare people, but there are ways to get there without getting punched in the face all day. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's so many layers that we, it, it, it's weeks to discuss, but the layers when you pull back out, you can start working on the micro changes right away. Because if you try to make big macro changes overnight, it's like me telling you that uh, I want you to paint your whole house on the inside green tomorrow. You're like, hell no. But if we start little little paint spots here and there, next thing you know, you're just going to be engrossed and digging the new paint job, you know, so. So you're gaslighting them, but for good. For good. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, Jim, you're obviously a a terrific fighter and anyone who's ever fought with you knows that one way or the other. But uh, I think really your real strength, even beyond being a good fighter, is in being an instructor. Yeah. And I I think that's really where, um, where, where, I mean, really your skill comes to the forefront, that there's something you can do very special that that I've never really seen seen or found in in, uh, other people. It's it's my true passion. You know, I've always dreamed of just finding that right person you know and, and you, you're never going to find you know to to become a world champion a boxer kickboxer whatever you know mixed martial artist and that's something else too all these guys that i took off the street all but one never had a fight and within a year and a half they're fighting world champions on tv pay-per-view ufc right uh hell Dale Comstock, he had a lot, of, like, a lot of experience, but it was an eye-opener for him, too, when he walked into my school, you know, uh, because it's, extra, you know, we do what everybody else does to a point, but we make it, we keep it real, you know, and, and keep it raw and try to try to break it down in a way, you know, all this one, two, three steps forward, lift this hand here, here do that there, step. It's just a lot of stuff you got to remember. Like I was trying to get Justin just a week ago to increase the power on this leg kick. So I said, look, Justin, act like you're throwing two punches, but don't throw the second punch. Just roll that shoulder and just turn the you know pelvis upside down. Just 
let your leg shoot completely through. Don't worry about your balance. Just bang. And, uh, boy, he, he liked to cripple Roger. <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, it's just, uh, it's being able to convey visually and physically your message, you know, into, into people. And you can't do that if you can't look at them and analyze, you so, know, and give that feedback. Speaking of which, Jim, tell us how you went about training the Honduran special forces, because you had some pretty unique techniques in how you went about that as well. Well, this it kind of cheats because they weren't allowed to quit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, every day we get up and we do some sort of PT, uh, sometimes in the middle of the night, we just get up and I tell everybody to put on their full gear, get their weapon, get their, you know, rucks, every, and we'd go run or ruck 12 miles, 15 miles, and still get up at five in the morning. So you barely have time. So we, we run on empty all the time, you know, and uh, some of the things that I did, we used to do uh, what you call 10 second drills when the, you know, the combatives, you sit two people down with it back, back to back blow a whistle so when they stand up they they just turn and start hitting each other you know uh doesn't have to be perfect or anything but you so you hit the whistle and if they turn and face each other they're already throwing but if either one of them takes a step back you hit the whistle again they stop and you start them over so you can't step back you just come up firing you know because when you're in a door kicking situation or you know a urban environment you run around a corner and bump into somebody you only have time to do one thing. And that's, it's like an eye you attack, attack, attack. Right. So, uh, like, like David was saying earlier, people try to think and process the way right out of a fight. But, uh, so we do 10 second drills, you know, which are, are, are master drills and getting people to become very positive what they do. We, we were mouthpiece headgear and stuff, you know, just to get them going the right way. And like I said, they weren't knockout artists at the time. Uh, I found out that part of my uh, crew wasn't doing the right thing. We were working, you know, like three months on, three months off and rotating with another group. And I couldn't get the snipers on paper. <laughs> so uh, we're going round for round, bala sing bala, you know, just I'm standing behind them and pulling the spotters off, you know, just do everything I could. They couldn't put three bullets in the same hole for anything. And I found out the sniper instructor for the group before me, the guy that started them, they were betting on their shot group, not group, but shot per shot. So this, the spotter was just changing every shot instead of getting a group together. So they were all, they were a mess. They're all over the place. And it's like, they wouldn't listen. So I said, okay, guys, spotters come off the scopes and walk with me. <laughs> Took a bullhorn. We go down 300 meters and sit, I sat them in front of the uh, silhouettes. And then I got on the bullhorn. I told the guys to, uh, lock and load, you know, and, uh, had them start firing. They, they, they got on paper right after that. So it was nice, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> so for, for people who aren't familiar with, uh, sort of some of the military slang and terminology, getting on paper just means hitting the target, uh, and snipers are trying to shoot a group and they were chasing each round is what you're saying. Yeah. So, uh, the thing is, is it, yeah. So when you're shooting, you're, you're shooting at the same point every time, but, uh, but if you start trying to trying to group, then you're aiming at your last shot. And if you're off, it's going to be even more off. So uh, instead of aiming center of the target to see where your rounds are actually hitting. So, sorry, I just wanted to make that, that little. Yeah. Deep. So a group is you want to put three rounds in as close as possible. Then you move the whole group, not each round individually. Right. And uh, you know, then when we get down to like final 
test day, you know, that we put them under so much stress, all their gear, you know, they got to jump in the water. They got to come up. They got to do 50 pushups. They've got a shotgun for breach and they've got two, nine millimeters, well, you know, and they go running down. They got to sit up outside the door. They got to breach the door to shotgun. They got to run in button hook behind it. We got windows and we're, we're screaming at them with bull horns and shooting the back of the legs with BB guns. And, and the day before, uh, in the day before, because it's a nighttime run, uh, we're doing what they call knockdown drills. Uh, we had them come in at high port. You know, we change that all the time. And when they walk through the door, they don't know what to expect. And uh, when they come through, I just catch them right in the body armor with a baseball bat. or And uh, hit this one guy. I'll tell you how well trained they are. You heard me say before that these guys are trained. I took, I took this one cat right off his feet. And uh, as he was going down, he came from the leather. And he, and he, you know, shooting discriminating targets at nighttime. He, he clipped every target, all the good ones, missed all the bad ones, went out the back door, reholstered his weapon and passed out. So what, what was like your, your training methodology was forming at this time, right? You'd been in a, a lot of bar fights, a lot of street fights. You'd been training hand to hand and now, and not that you hadn't been doing it before this point in time, but how was like, okay, there's a difference between when I'm, you know, fighting in a ring, uh, fighting a guy on the street, like the parameters difference. And now I've got a guy who's kitted out, has a weapon. How do you, like, how did that influence your training style? Uh, or, you know, what changed or what did you learn from that? Frankly, not a lot change. Uh, because first of all, you know, with all that gear, we would go, like I say, 10, 12, 15 mile runs with everything. And we'd follow up with hand to hand. We just never stop. Um, when you're all kitted up and stuff, you, you know, maybe on certain entry points and stuff, it may, may or may not become an issue. I was more worried with covering the sides for knife attacks and stuff because there are gaps and everything. And, uh, you know, frankly, back in those days, uh, we trained both ways because a lot of people consider those vest trauma pads, you know, like, uh, some there, there are enough people that would rather have a bullet just run right through them than break all your bones. So you know, because when you're shooting seven, six, two, and up, it's uh, yeah, it's it's just and now what is what is shooting fifty cal? I mean, it's crazy, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you know, the the, the, only, the only thing about wearing the the gear is the, the heat, the temperature, you know. So you got to make sure to control your uh, breath control. You know, everything's about relaxation, you know, and just thinking your way, not thinking your way through, seeing your way through. Uh, when you get uptight about anything and you short, you shorten your breath, you know, rescue breathing, panic breathing, short, whatever, you're done anyway, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you do have to clean a lot because just like a rucksack, you know, day after day after day, if you're not taking showers and take, you get that uh, like a, a prickly heat or something. Yeah. And, and that never goes away. Once your thermostat's broke, it's broke for life. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of care in putting things on, taking them off. And uh, we actually train and, and we would hang the, uh, we would hang the uh, vest, you know, bulletproof vest on three quarter inch soft steel and just, you know, and actually shoot them with all kinds of different weapons. And so they knew what they were getting into. Um, it's, it is difficult to get a, you know, like a lot of judo moves and stuff and grappling moves like cross mountain, all that is, I, I think that, uh, the military today has, has its baseline is probably 80% BJJ or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And I think that's a great base, 
but I think they need to flip it to about 80% stand up because just like the UFC, when it first came out, it was all ground fighting, you know, ground to pound wrestlers. You watch the guys today, the best fighters in the world. They don't, at times they don't even go to the ground. Mm -hmm. So, you know, realistically, you don't want to be laying there and you're going to be grossly affected when you're moving and trying to grapple with all your gear on because right. fingers get caught in things. They break trying to transition, you know, it's just, um, so for me, it's a lot of angulation, you know, making sure that like, if you can't twist turn completely because the gear is restricting you, then you have to manipulate your angles by, by manipulating your distance, which means you've got to protect different areas, certain ways. So, you know, the, you just learn, it's like learning how to punch with a, with a broken arm uh, or, or, you know, some sort of an injury. You, you can always make the adjustment uh, to maximize your power. I mean, a street fight itself, how many, people are really on balance and in the right position when that fight starts. So you got to learn how to fight off balance too. Mm -hmm. So the training is individualized. Even when I'm training guys, you know, that are all kitted up because they have to learn how to maximize their power and balance and shift their weight and be able to get the rotation in appropriately. Does that mean it's going to be perfect in terms of how I'm going to fight you? If I'm stripped down, no, it's totally going to be different, but you can deliver equal power or more. So actually we shorten everything up quite a bit. And that's then, something I'd love to see you work on in the future, Jim, is like modern day, uh, you know, like the sort of OSS style fighting or, I mean, I don't know if there is, there's, yeah, there is a Fort Bragg. They have a course. I can't remember the name of it where they, you go into the room and you're fighting in full kit. I'd like to see you develop something like that. Like how do you fight and utilize or how does that, all that web gear you're wearing and plate carriers and helmets, how does that all impact um, uh, the fight for a modern soldier? Yeah, well, oddly enough, I do a lot of thinking about it recently, you know, and, and it's good to have products like books and this bad boy here. <laughs> this is a game changer, guys. It, think about a guy that has one position here and he's right-handed, right? So that... Uh, he goes around a corner and loses his weapon. He ends up with this. And uh, this is a game changer, flat out. You know, it. once anybody puts one in their hands and actually gets trained, you don't know exactly what I'm talking about. So are, are uh, those available yet, Jim? I have 50 of them sitting right here, but I, I determined after playing with it a bit that I'm not quite ready to, to, to sell them yet. Uh, I, I'm, I'm working on a tip cover, you know, like the international orange and a different holstrings that I've got a couple of mock-ups. So, uh, I would, I would probably sell one without a holster, but, uh, I'd have to send a waiver and know who I'm selling to. Jim, what, what do you call that? And do you have the box for it and everything? Cause people are kind of curious. It's called the badger. So it's, it's a little bit, I mean, it's like a, it's like a modified crambit in a way. Yeah. Uh, Okay, it's totally I, different and by the way it's fully patented mine right here yeah yeah this is fully patented because this little angle right here mm -hmm. has about 26 little angles that give it the ability to do this without cutting yourself and if you have a reverse grip oh it's got it, a punch tip on it too yes it does it does this without cutting you and that blade, that one and a half inch blade is razor sharp. It was designed 
for people that get mugged unexpectedly, taken off guard, and they can do this without cutting themselves. Right. And you can work from this position and rip and tear like a like a badger. Well, and uh, I think that's one of the things that people, you know, I mean, Kramitz really kind of came into into popularity when people realized that, you know, if I get jammed up, it's not easy to pull a straight blade knife or to use a straight blade knife to to stab, to do whatever. And so I have Jack, you want to show your Kramit again real quick? Um, uh, so this is the modern day kind that, you know, it has a locking blade and you hold it in your hand. And so it, it just can be a real close in when somebody's grabbing you, just twist. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things I think that when you talk about the modern military focus on BG, uh, BJJ, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for those of you who don't know, which is an exceptionally effective style. But when you're going through a door, and somebody, you know, you turn a corner and somebody grabs your weapon, you know, it's not really at that point in time when you want to go to the ground, you want to, you know, so many guys get, will get target fixated and start fighting for their weapon when if they just released it because it was slung and went to their secondary or their tertiary. Um, were those things that you experimented with when you were with the Hondurans? I mean, like, because bringing in a, a long gun, bringing in pistols, bringing things like that, do you feel that they changed the nature of what you were teaching or did just more adaptive skills? I think more adaptive skills. I mean, for long guns, you know, you use a car 15 instead of a M16 because of the short barrel. Uh -huh. If you go back historically, you know, in Vietnam, a lot of guys use a car 15 because that jungle was, you know, eating things up when you're going through doors, the shorter, the, the shorter, the barrel, the better you are. So the car 15 serves a much greater function. And so do the Mac 10s and Uzis. So, you know, you just, everything's shorter, you know, and pistols, pistols, and even, but the shotgun, you know, we used was pretty long. You had typically the Remington 870 with the uh, extender on it, mm -hmm. but shotguns are used for different purposing, you know, so, um, yeah, it's just adaptive skills. Jim, I had uh, some other questions I wanted to ask you about the deployments down to Central America. And uh, one of one of them, you know, I'll, I'll let you, you know, phrase this how you will. Uh, you you worked you worked with a guy fairly notorious, uh, you know, indige named Lieutenant Hernandez, who's mentioned in Human Rights Watch reports for, you know, allegedly being involved in some pretty uh, horrendous human rights abuses back in the 1980s. Um, now, there's all kinds of interesting things to get into here because nowadays, because of what happened in Central America, the Leahy Amendment came about and we have to vet the groups we work with, um, sometimes at the unit level, sometimes all the way down to the individual to ensure we're not training war criminals in some manner. Um, but at, at that point, I'm not sure that the Leahy Amendment was even around or if the CIA would even have been beholden to it. Um, but I mean, what was your experience like with this guy? So, so I... Let me, let me preface that by saying Jack's really good at what he does. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I was on this operation. I gave him the name. I, I don't know. If, like I'm meeting with him a week later and he's got 851 page document on it. I'm like, holy shit, Christ, where do you get, where do you come up with this stuff? You know? And uh, so, so Jack really does his homework. Um, and, and the only thing I would say about the conduct of business in general is when you're on active duty, this is my opinion, and working for the CIA, you're really not in the CIA, and the CIA is utilizing you as an asset, and they're really not working either. So I don't think any kind of amendment would really apply necessarily. 
just thinking. But uh, yeah, this guy, he, he seemed to be uh, like a party kind of guy, you know, but uh, he would always disappear and he'd grab some of his, he had a little core group of guys. He'd just say, Teniente Hernandez, he's not going to be here today. He's got, and he'd come back, you know, and all disheveled and drunk sometimes. And then we had an operation that we were going to do and, Hey, we need him. We need him. You know, and these guys are scared to operate without him. And so one of the guys, you know, we had to put a little stress on him. They knew where he was. So we go to this nice humble abode and ring the bell. And he had his vehicle out front. We knew he was there and he comes to the door and he creeps the door open and he's sweating like he stole something. He's, hands and chest has blood splattered all over it and stuff. And I'm like, I'll be right. I'm like, I'll be right out. You know, I'm thinking this is a bad guy. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what kind of soup he was making, but, uh, clearly he's, uh, not afraid of a, a abusive activity. Right. And, uh, then it, it, you know, it was speaking to some of the guys, it's rumored that he's, uh, done some really horrendous, uh, interrogation techniques and tactics of which not anyone lived uh when he's done he's done so yeah he he has that reputation you know and you know you hear about a lot of it because you're close to it uh, if you know what i mean so it's uh i mean this is an interesting thing to just speak about for a moment was that you were an active duty special forces warrant officer seconded to the cia um, I, I've used that term sheep dipped, which is like old 1950s uh, lingo. <laughs> right. now, nowadays, uh, there, there's a, a more formal process. It's called the Defense Sensitive Support System or DSSS, which is it's much, much more formal where one agency requests the help of another or vice versa. But I mean, back in those days, it was interesting because you were one of those guys and what it enabled was what it would have been President Reagan, right? He could go on television and say, "No boots on the ground." Yeah, absolutely. I, th I thought it was more about uh, truth in reporting, you know, because if the president's up there and he said, "Do you have a CIA working here?" He goes, "No." Or do you have special forces? He goes, "No." Right, right. Technically, he's not lying. Right, <laughs> so. right, right. I mean, I experienced that as a reporter with the National Guard all the freaking time, where I go to the National Guard. And they're like, oh yeah, those guys in Somalia, they were under federal auspices. So we can't comment on that. I go to the, I, I go to the Pentagon. I say, Hey, the Pentagon, these guys you have in Somalia, Hey, those are national guard guys. Can't comment on that. You talk to state, yeah. And they're, they're both like doing this number to me. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> you tell me graduated from Columbia. <laughs> yeah, hey, I, I did. I did go to school. I'm not a complete moron here. I think you guys are giving me the runaround. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're good at it. But uh, the pay is good. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that wasn't your only trip down there either. Like th there was one where you were working with Maritime Branch or something like that. Well, actually, um, wow. So anything we discuss is open. It's out there in the news. You know, just what's not yeah, out there is history all, now. Yeah. yeah, all the players. But uh, so I was down there doing our day-to-day -day function and uh, our our station chief leader comes up and he's like, Hey, uh, Jim, we're going to send you up to work with our maritime organization in uh, Puerto Cortez. I'm like, well, we're not finished here. He's like, Jim was sending you up to the maritime organization. I'm like, like tapping his foot. <laughs> like, I'm like, all right, 
whatever. You know, I, I knew that something didn't smell right, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so I go up there and uh, had a wonderful time uh, working. Most of those guys are all former Navy SEALs and stuff. And, uh, you know, I was com I was the only combat diver on our team. So it was, I figured, well, okay, it makes sense. And that's what he told me, cover story, you know, you're the only combat diver. We need you up there. And, you know, uh, so anyway, everything's said and done. We go home and I get a call one morning from my house uh, back at Fort Bragg and Jim, Jim, turn on the news, turn on the news. Well, uh, turn on the news. And uh, it, it, for those of you who ever heard that story, you know, Jack, you can say more about it, but those guns for Contras and all that stuff, you know, uh, well, they're members of my team and they were being hauled out of their homes in handcuffs. I'm like, wow. They were, they were doing the, that right the under Iran my nose. Project. Yeah. The, the Iran project. Yes. Uh, they were good. Cause I didn't have a clue. Uh, but, but in this case, those guys, uh, they, they were seventh group guys. And I, I know because after you told me, I looked on uh, in the Fayetteville observer, there's a story about the FBI kicking down their front door, but they were doing it completely illegal, like on their own smuggling guns, running yes. guns down there. Yeah. But they were taking like, like from our inventory for the COE and all that stuff, the commandos, uh, they were changing, you know, uh, parts, bits and pieces and shipping them out, you know, whatever they were doing, but, uh, doing yeah. Dirt. yeah, so much fun, right? Yeah. Um, Hey, we have some questions I want to get to you real quick before we keep okay. on. Um, first off hammer and nails. Thank you very much for your donation. We really appreciate it. Um, David Maynard, thank you very much. Uh, what is the best story about how someone got a nickname? Oh, maybe maybe how Jim got his nickname. That's a good one. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, Smokey, right? So everybody knows me by Smokey because my brothers and cousins were group guys before I was, and that's how I was introduced. And, and uh, But the, the day I was born, uh, the house that my family was living in caught on fire my mom went into labor while she was trying to save the clothes and pull things out and she was covered in black smut and all that they they got to the hospital i was delivered and uh she didn't name me right away it took about three days to give me a real name so the nurses started calling me smoky so i've lived with that my entire life so. jim are you saying that fire and brimstone preceded your your birth well, Jack knows a lot about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It preceded my birth. Uh, my, my mother used to say the devil chased me into the world and he will chase me out. So time will tell. Uh, I have, I have had a visit with the devil before. Yeah. I was pronounced dead. If you remember. You, you talk in, in your, uh, your other book, what, what's the name of it again? Messages from beyond. Um, yeah. And you talk about that, that near death experience you had. Yeah. This guy. And you were in a coma for how long? Uh, two days. I was, uh, which I didn't even know because you're not supposed to know, I guess, until, until I was going to the VA and I was going through my records. I go, I started reading my own records. And I'm like, what, what the heck? Because I, I said, I don't remember this. And then, then the administrator's like, oh, you wouldn't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. I mean, it's like a blank in your life that you you just never get to re-experience, you know, except for, except for the part where I, uh, this dark veil took over me and I was in a place of, it wasn't bright lights and nice things, you know, I think my life was, I definitely received a message there, you know. 
Yeah, I think it's important to, I, I mean, not from a moral standpoint, for just from a personal development to kind of point out that, like when you talk about these bar fights and you talk about these events in your life prior, you were like a very angry person at that point in time. Like they, you, you're not, I don't, you're not implying that, that your behavior or who you were at that time is somebody that people should emulate. It's just, it's just a combination of your, it's, it's your life experiences that form who you are now. Yeah, no, the, re the book itself uh, actually, it, it, it it's sets a foundation for, um, for this book, right? Because yeah. if I'm going to be a stage uh, teacher, mentor, coach, to give you and pass on all this experience and knowledge that I have in hopes that you become a better person, a better team player, a better soldier, you know, just, just, and when they read the book and they go, wow, this guy's drunk and fighting all the time. Why do I want to learn from a drunk? Right. Uh, you're right. You know, 30, 40 years ago, 25 years ago, I was angry all the time. And uh, it's not like I had something to prove. I just liked to fight. And like when I was a kid, when I fought, I wanted to hurt somebody. It's not like I never got hurt because I've been stitched up. I've had over 200 stitches. I've had nerve damage, you know, I've had uh, septum, you know, just uh, it's, it's, it's not without uh, paying your dues along the way. You know, uh, like I said, when I say I'm lucky to be here and I feel blessed, <laughs> you know, I've been stabbed in the back, beat on the head with beer bottles full of beer, just, uh, and I won all those fights. And I tell you, it's just pure anger and, and, and some technical expertise to go with it, knowing how to breathe, you know, how to ride a punch, tuck your chin, you know, just the ways you can protect yourself under the worst of conditions. And that's another thing that, uh, you know, hopefully my training will get you to that point one day, you know, that even when it's unexpected and uncalled for and what you think is terrible, it really may not be that terrible. And you always will have an opportunity to uh, walk away, you know, so. It's funny because, um, you know, you talk about your anger kind of getting you through a lot of those fights. And I think it, I think it was Carl Sestari who once said that when you hit, you have to hit with hate you know, that it's that, that sort of kind of anger that drives you through. Um, uh, real quick, uh, Alex, thank you very much. And he says, my question is a bit long, please see below. Uh, most police are required to requalify yearly on firearms, but are never required to qual on defense tactics, hand-to-hand -hand and PT or physical training, only once in a career for the exception of SWAT teams. As an expert in martial arts, how would you restructure police hand-to-hand -hand and petri training and standards? Well, you know, based on the uh, current situation, uh, both the one that happened here in New York a few years ago and this uh, one in Minnesota, uh, that was a horrible, horrible event. You know, to to sit there and just watch a guy die, it, you know, every, anyone, I mean, entire America saw this thing. I don't think it justifies burning and looting a town, but certainly protests would be appropriate, right? Uh, I think this individual should have been arrested immediately. I had to get that out. But, uh, you know, because when you watch that, there's, he's just, he just is guilty. There's nothing more to be said about that. But, uh, you, you know, the, the facts are with the, with the cops uh, and the law enforcement agents, they have ability to train, but it's on their own, right? They always provide right. the platform. Uh, I think not even annual recalls. I think anytime a significant event came up, uh, 
you know, like I'm in the construction industry and if a guy has, falls off a ladder, we pull everybody around. I mean, it could be a thousand people. It could be 30, depending on how many is on your job. And we talk about the do's and don'ts and let's make sure we don't repeat the same thing. And that's what training, good training is all about. You know, it's not looking back, it's moving forward. And, you know, like this event, every single police law enforcement officer in the country, federally, state, local, should be stood down in groups, never taken off guard, you know, because they're, the, they're the guardians of our safety. And, and they should retrain on the specific of this incident. Like there are ways you can, you can hold that guy in that position, you know, without killing him and without even injuring him. Uh, and, and then the protocols, they should be reevaluated I, I would say once a quarter, you know, with, with some questions, a survey, you know, and if you don't pass 75% of minimum, maybe then uh, you should be suspended from duty until you can, can give, give the appropriate answers. You know, I mean, they should be held to a monster standard. You know, I mean, one of the things that aggravates a mess out of me, you know, working in and out of New York city all the time, you guys are aware, uh, you know, and you both have extreme tactical backgrounds, you know, when you walk into, you know, One World Trade, the Oculus, One Pin, there's all kinds of police protection, you know, kitted up, guns, all everything. And they're standing in groups, mm -hmm. you know, one grenade will get them all. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think that they should have a roving uh, evaluators that come through and say, you know, just hand them a ticket and say, before you come back out, we got to retrain you, you know, because you're not following protocol. I mean, when you're putting a gun in a man's hand, He's got to have his stuff together and he's got to be disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. We do a lot of work in this country to further professionalize the police force. I think. There, there's certainly a lot more interest for sure. I mean, I'm supposed mm -hmm. to, I uh, think September 19th, go down to uh, Titusville, Florida, to the, uh, uh, to the uh, uh, policeman's museum down there and, uh, anywhere from 100 to 600 law enforcement officers, you know, they, they're always available for training. They'll come in and, uh, you know, obviously we will respect the physical distance, social separation and all the whatever, whatever is uh, enhanced uh, safety standards are and still accomplish our mission. But, uh, you know, so I've, I think that's a great opportunity. And I know there are a lot of, a lot of really, really solid police officers that train, train, train. Unfortunately, they, yeah, I don't know how much of that tab is being picked up by the uh, by the departments. You know, right. I, I, well, and that's the thing is that I mean, most of the time it's a budget issue. And anybody, any police officer who is good at shooting, uh, you know, accurate, um, good at hand to hand of some sort, uh, or or whatever, it's because they've taken their own time and their own money after their job after long shifts to go out and do that on their own. And, and also it's a, it's a, a time and a scheduling issue because if they, if you take them and, and send them out to a shooting range once a week to practice, that guy's not on the street. You don't have anyone to go patrol. So. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, and then cities, states, they pass laws that, you know, for the, for, uh, I can't, the gentleman who uh, passed away for selling Lucy's right. Loose cigarettes. It's like, why should that, you know, when you're looking at yeah. what the government is, what the government, what laws they're making that are forcing the police into these confrontations instead of just giving the guy right, a citation right. 
and walking away. So it, it's challenging. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it was a tough job. Uh, Brendan Greenhill, um, tips for surviving for an older 50 plus guy like me who has been out of training for a while. Uh, get your body moving. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, like I have had tons of tons of injuries. Uh, I can't go out and straight and run, but I can move pretty effectively all the time. So, you know, sometimes when you're starting back up, I think it would be important to be lightweight. Uh, those uh, band, workout bands are really good uh, and, and work, you know, modify your range of motion until it's, until it, uh, you know, you're getting your strength back, but uh, you want to work really light and high repetition because you, before you start building muscle, you want to start making sure the underlayment, the ligaments and tendons are strong. Otherwise you're going to have these big muscles and still be weak underneath and even more prone to injury. And uh, the, the other thing about repetition is it's good for the cardio, the heart, right? So I, I like to do almost daily. I do a 60 rep workout. So I'll take the bands and I'll do 60, you know, these, I try to do one rep per second. I'll do 60 overhead presses with the bands, 60 triceps, 60 curls, just boom, boom, boom. Maybe start out with 30, right? Something that you can manage and actually complete the goal. But by but your rest period, if you had to take a minute because you're just in really bad shape and can't breathe and you're struggling, you know, take no more than a minute rest. But your goal is to take a 10-second rest between the exercises and to do one one rep per second for per minute. So when you're doing that, you're actually getting into cardio rehab. You're strengthening your heart. You know, uh, both of my brothers passed away in the VA on an operating table under anesthesia because they had a weak heart. They mm -hmm. both smoked excessively, drank quite a bit. And uh, I think otherwise, if they had worked on their, you know, heart condition and just general health, they would have stood a much better opportunity of surviving this, so, you know. Do you know the uh, Brendan's question actually kind of leads into something you talk about in the book uh, and, you know, because he says for surviving, uh, you know, surviving for older people, and maybe we're not even talking about a 50 year old who, who's never even been trained, um, anybody who's never been trained, you know, and, and, they're, and they say, you know, I, I don't want to be able to, it doesn't matter if I can get in a ring and fight with an MMA person, but I want to feel safe on the street. I want to feel safe you know, when I go someplace um, and I don't have, you know, $200 a month to spend on Muay Thai classes. I don't have a ton of time. I've got a family or I've got school. There are all these programs out there, you know, uh, Delta Force, Navy SEAL, hand-to-hand, -hand, learn the tactics of, you know, yeah. learn, learn the self-defense, you know, techniques of people who are sent behind enemy lines with only a knife. Like, what would you say about a person who, who wants to learn some fundamental self-defense, but, but is not going to train to be a fighter? Well, you, you know, there's a couple of elements that you just have to incorporate. One of them is what I call impact training. You know, I mean, like when I take my gloves and work out, I'll, I'll just work on my body, you know, cause you're going to get hit and you got to keep, you know, I would actually start out frankly with uh, just basic boxing, you know, one, two punch, a couple hooks, because as easy as you can throw a right hand, you can throw an elbow. And a lot of your fights 
are going to be so close and out of control. It's what I call fight confusion. I like to bring people in where they're off balance and they can't get their techniques off properly. And uh, then I start working a lot of real nasty techniques straight up and down the center line. So you also have to learn a little bit about how to hurt people. I mean, you don't have to be an expert boxer to stick your finger in a guy's eye, right? And that's going to shut most people down instantaneously. So, uh, you know, growing shots are valuable. Uh, almost any any sharp edge weapon. I mean, this is what it is. But if I took this part away, then it just had a little spike. Uh, that's quite a weapon in its, on its own. You can roll up a newspaper or magazine and break bricks with them. You know, if you just take it by the spine and just roll it really hard. So I, I think learning, you know, what around you, which is almost anything and everything can be used as a weapon. And then what's the best way to deploy it in, in an emergency, you know? So, and then you got to learn a little bit about uh, how to use the natural terrain in your environment for protection, right? Like alleyways, parking lots, stepping behind, you know, uh, trash cans or anything, you know, dropping things in front of people's feet, just disrupting their timing. And right. What would you say about, I don't know, all of the programs out there that'll teach you how to defeat any attacker in seven moves and, you know, um, you know, because there's so much marketing, right? Yeah. Whose Kung Fu is stronger, Jim? Is it yours or this other guy? I can teach you how to beat a guy in one move, you know, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? I mean, um it, it, it takes more than just training. It takes uh, a level of practical application and, and also the, you know, the book is, has a lot to do with mindset. You know, how do you, how do you get your mind focused on, you know, not being, you know, scared, fight or flight, all that chemistry that makes you weak, strong, and then weak, you know, he's, you know, when somebody jumps on you, you feel like you're going to faint sometimes, right? How do you just go into action? Like those 10 second drills I was talking about, that's a technique, but my inside out training, I work inside of this box, you know, right in front of you because the fight's not across the street, not across the room. It's here. So also train focus. Yeah, it doesn't mean don't be aware of your surroundings. Don't be smart on your route selection or your clothing. You know, you think, think all that through in your, in your pre-planning, right? But, but in your physical pre-planning, think from the, from the inside outward, because what goes on here, I mean, a great example, if you guys ever watch football, those interior linemen, when they come off the line, they're just not two big guys running into each other. They're trying to work around each other and maneuver each other. There's so much little hand play on when those guys come off the line, they can turn you around in a, in a hurry and they can hurt you and put you down real fast just by working angles, right? So learning how to balance and shift your weight in a real natural way and, uh, you know, tucking your chin always, just keep biting down, just, you know, no loose jaws and just keeping everything real tight in here because you can work so fast and effectively once you learn how gravity and can affect your punch strength, um, you know, with just little short steps. Uh, fights don't last long. Uh, you could do it in seven moves, <laughs> but uh, I, I would never guarantee it. It's more more about your mental preparation and, and getting your body to, you know, pull your body along with it.
Jim, I got one more question for you, and then I want to roll right into the contents of your new book, uh, A Mind for a Fight. I want to get into that. But there's one thing that I was kind of teasing out on social media uh, in preparation for this episode that I saw people were really interested in. I started talking about the Colombian Lancero course that you had gone through. Yeah. Uh, and the Colombian Lancero, it's the Colombian Ranger School. And the culmination of it, the final, uh, the final test, is a live combat patrol in enemy territory. It was against FARC for many years. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, if you could tell us about your experience going to the Lancero course. Yeah, well, you know, and the, when, when they take you down to the Amazon River Basin where these patrols occur, uh, the FARC trains in the exact same area. So you get uh, combat pay or hazardous duty pay, you know, whether you ever actually get in contact or not. Uh, one night we decided to break some protocols going around a danger zone because we're falling behind, you know, like our uh, schedule or supposed to uh, hit a target. So we uh, decided to uh, cut through the middle and there was a big light in the middle of the field, for example. And uh, as soon as we took the light out, a dog starts barking. You know, a lot of drug dealers, both in the States and in Colombia and everywhere else, they they don't have these sophisticated alarm systems. They got dogs and dogs are very good, <laughs> right? And uh, so this dog starts barking, we're thinking, oh, boy, we, we, did we all of a sudden, uh, some some people opened up on us, you know, f opened fire on us. I'm like, Christ, I won't cut, I won't cuss on your show. <laughs> uh, you can, I don't care. I didn't know, I didn't, I don't know the rules, right? So uh, I'm like, oh, damn. So. I jumped what I thought was behind a berm. It was actually about a six inch knoll, but you know, you've been in firefights yourself, right? Um, sizes and shapes take different size and shape, you know, in a hurry. And you, you may think you're safe and you're really not, but then we were split up into three groups because we had an advanced group out. And all of a sudden we've got muzzle fire going in every direction. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when the smoke cleared, uh, six people were killed, not none, none of ours. Uh, so, you know, we took the credit uh, down there. They're so poor. So it's likewise in the Philippines, uh, you have to spend all day going around picking up all the brass, because if you don't pick up the brass, the enemy will pick up the brass and go reload it. So, I mean, you actually, oddly enough, you'll lose points in your uh, training if you're not Holy shit. If you went out, if you went out with 30 rounds and you don't come back with 30 pieces of brass, uh, they, <laughs> they deduct points from you. So very critical. Um, and then we were patrolling one day and, uh, this, uh, I had, uh, General Escobar's son was right next to me. He's like here. And, uh, I heard an explosion and you, you know, you've had things fly by your head before, right, Jack? It's, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like little springs or something just cutting through the air and, I saw him go down. I'm thinking, because everything moves ultra fast. And I'm thinking, smartest guy out here. I better get down too. And I go down. And this is a very important story to me. I looked over at him and uh, whatever whizzed by my head didn't whiz by his. It went through his head and, and took off his cheek. A big part of his neck and ear was just gone. And it was so hot that it actually cauterized most of it in route. And uh, his eyes were still open and, you know, bringing that particular thing, there's several dreams, you know, like when we talk about combat related PTSD and stress uh, dreams, you know, 
there's a difference between flashbacks and nightmares. Nightmares are not flashbacks, they're nightmares, right? So you'll probably have both. Uh, I think most people don't know when they're having flashbacks. Uh, there's, you have to learn all these little triggers. But one of my nightmares is uh, this specific incident. Uh, it kind of repeats and replays itself in my head. Only uh, at one point in time, the VA tried to uh, put me on some some sort of antidepressant drugs. I don't know what they were, but uh, I kind of hallucinated through this dream. And a guy starts waking up and coming to and his neck. And I just jumped up, went straight back to the VA. I said, whatever you're going to do with me is yeah. going to be, it's going to be without drugs. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. uh, but you learn to cope and deal with these things. You know, you, I'm confident both you two guys and many of our listeners have their own experiences, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, when you, when you, when you go down and you're, and you're cleaning things up and picking up your brass and, and you got part of the guy's ears and brains on you, it's, it, it stays with you, uh, not for a little while, but for, for the rest of your life, even, even, especially when you're not thinking about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It just pops up at the, at the weirdest moments. Yeah. yeah. But what, what the hell happened? Was it like a, a grape shot or an IED or something like that? Uh, more of an IED. Uh, uh, we don't know because once it blew off, it just, uh, I mean, it took off tree barks and stuff, you know, so we never found the uh, container itself. So I, I don't think it was uh, set properly. I think it went, I, I think if there was any bad guy on the backside, it would have got them too. But uh, however this thing was detonated, I, we don't even know that. But uh, So what was, um, you know, could you tell us a little bit about the, like the rest of the course uh, as far as like the training and what it encompasses up to that, up to the test mission? It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it's like ranger school with no safety standards um and it's very very hot in melgar columbia gets uh in what they call a primavera which is our springtime it's just summertime you're closer to the equator it gets literally 125 130 degrees ambient temperature during the day so it's very very hot and uh you know how you got to go on your rug marches your pt your physical fitness your hand-to-hand -hand pit i got uh, extra points for cracking a guy's neck in a hand-to-hand -hand pit well, uh, your your forte. That's your thing. Yeah, they gave me a hundred. Uh, yeah, the guy. I didn't realize a lot of these uh, Spanish fellows have uh, good wrestling and jujitsu skill. Yeah, I, yeah. And so he caught me by surprise. So I put him just face down and uh, cracked his vertebrae, and they gave me 150 uh, positive points. <laughs> uh, another thing is they're kind of poor, so all your training is live fire because they can't afford uh, blank ammunition. So you got to be careful and extra uh, cautious in your planning and movement and activity because every round that goes down range is a real round, you know? When and I was in Ranger Battalion, we sent somebody to Lancero and he came back and I remember him saying that you no shit had to be in the patrol base by 5 p.m. because it gets so dark in the jungle, like you just can't see your hand in front of your face. It's Well, you know, it, it, it's not just that. It, it they have stuff in that jungle that, uh, I mean, they have mosquitoes that look like clouds and, and that uh, Amazon River has piranha in it. You know, I mean, there's stuff in there that uh, just isn't natural. And <laughs> and it is, it's black. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's like when I was in Desert Storm and they, you know, those oil rigs were, uh, you know, caught on fire by Saddam's people. And when we were going through the breach points, at one point, the wind, we got down wind and and uh, you couldn't see the windshield on your truck. It was so bad, you know, but uh, yeah, you got to be buckled down. You know, the stand too that you go through and 
ranger yeah. school is, is, it takes on a different meaning down there and yeah. uh and of course you, you know they don't use a lot of high tech anything uh like we're, we're low crawling through a cow pasture i'm sure your buddy might be able to tell you and they make you crawl right through the cow dung and it's got maggots in it and stuff and they got these big did he tell you about the uh water barrels in the uh, barracks they're open on the top and the monkeys come in and pissing the drink out of the water barrels and that's your water i got amoebic and bacterial dysentery while i was down there so it's uh, and the class before me, one of our guys got pulled out, and uh, it's when they, uh, the FARC, you know, attacked the embassy down there years ago. Uh, one of our, one of my teammates was in the class before mine. They pulled them out and took them down to defend the uh, embassy. So Jeez. it's just, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's it was it's just because like even in Panama, you know, when Fort Sherman was still open, you did the jungle warfare training down there. It's like triple canopy. Night vision doesn't work uh, because there's no, no illumination. Uh, they've got um, uh, the black palm, which are these spikes. Nasty. That nettle and the black palm are hard. yeah that you can't see, so you start to lose your footing and you reach out, and all of a sudden you have spikes through your hands. So, uh, so yeah, when it gets dark, everybody everything stops because. Yeah. There's no moving. If you ever walked into that nettle at night or day, that's like catching on fire <laughs> it's a, and you don't see it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. they got bad snakes, fertilance and all that stuff. And Oh, the 50 scorpions and Yeah. Yeah. The, the big centipedes, millipedes or whatever. Yeah. Howler monkeys <laughs> all night long. You know, it's oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, there, there, it's a whole other episode getting into the stories with you about Fort Gulick and uh, all the Gulf War stuff. And I mean, there's just so much other stuff. And we'll yeah. talk about on the bonus segment after this, we'll talk about the green light missions. Um, when you were on the green light team training to infiltrate with a, essentially a backpack nuke into foreign countries, if, you know, we went to war with the Soviets. But right now, I wanted to um, make sure that we talk about and allot some time to talking about your new book, A yes. Mind for Fight, or A Mind to Fight. What was the title of the book, Jim? A Mind for the Fight. Thank you. Um, so what is this book about? What is American Extension Fighting? Okay, so the book itself, uh, it, it establishes the, the, the architecture and the framework around what I call American Extension Fighting. American extension fighting is a, a system that I've developed and had sanctioned and certified by Grandmaster Jerry Pennington and Danny McCall signed off on it. And, uh, but it's taken me literally 47 years. But over the last 27 years, I've been working at trying to create a system that, that would unify other systems without saying this, you know, one of my biggest headaches is my karate is better than your karate. You know, it, it, it's, it's, we should be a family, right? But every, every style and every system also has gaps, you know, like the Taekwondo guy, the pure jujitsu guy, the, you know, the stand up game, the, the street, you know, self-defense, you know, just there's gaps everywhere in movement technique, uh, the imperfection of a, a real fight. And we try to, through a series of different technological analytics and, and a lot of critical uh, 
eyes on people, styles, and systems to be able to pull together there, you know, and fill in the gaps and not take away, but add to whatever they're already doing. And of course, the curriculum for the style itself is individualized. Like we have multifaceted uh, curriculums that you can learn how to kickbox. You can train as a mixed martial artist, street fighter, boxer, uh, or you can cover all the aspects. At some point in time during your training, you have to be completely aware of it, how, how to take what I learned as a boxer into the street or into an MMA ring. What's, what's important and how does everything tie and trend together, you know? So um, American Extensify is a very complete way to train. And uh, th there's a lot to do with the mindset, you know, because we've created a, uh, uh, the system focused approach, you know, instead of the uh, the old style linear stuff where they push you through the training, you know, give me 15 kicks or 20 push-ups or give me this or that, you know, it's, it's almost punitive in many cases. And, and, and but the thing is, uh, they're doing it for goal setting and positive reinforcement. And it's kind of hard to be punitive while you're reinforcing the guy, right? Uh, so, you know, the system itself is is geared towards um, how to train the complete fighter. And, and there's a psychological umbrella. You know, we create these three buckets, right? These three toolboxes for mechanical, technical, and psychological development. But they're, they're actually enshrouded uh, behind the scenes with the entire environment and a lot deeper dive, which tie into the... the uh, technical fight principles. So it, it, it all blends and there's a way to, to make these toolboxes work. You know, it's, a, it's just a complete system. So Jim, when, you know, you talk about, um, uh, you talk about Joe Lewis and how he sort of combined things. And, you know, you talk about, you know, you talk about Jeet Kundo and then you have AF. So there are, there are pre-existing systems um, that, Try to take everything useful and, and leave everything that's not. What what differentiates like American extension fighting from Jeet Kune Do, where they're both where they're all you know everybody's saying yeah we only use what's useful. Well, I'm not saying what's yeah. useful. I'm saying what's useful at the time, you know. Okay. So <laughs> right, so you have to know an awful lot. You know, the, the the theory is to know a lot and use a little. Uh -huh. um, so you're going to learn ground up fighting, but you're also going to learn what makes your body work, you know, like uh, conservation of angular momentum is involved in all types of sports. You know, it's, it's the theory of the whip. It's, it's how power is generated through each joint from the floor up. As you twist and turn every joint, you're gaining momentum and power, you know, and how to put that power, not just way out here on the end of my fist, but right here mm -hmm. on my elbow or headbutt. So there's a lot of shifting and turning and you know, learning a lot about, uh, you know, biomechanics are a big part of it. Uh, how, how gravity and plyometric training impact your ability to, you know, control different situations. Uh, you know, obviously if you're in a boxing match, you're gonna wear a boxing glove. If you're a shooter, you, you wanna use open palm. So, you know, the knowledge base covers the environment as well. It's not a very linear approach and, and it fills all gaps.
what one of the things that I got from from reading your book, and for the people who don't know, your book actually goes over fights that you've been in, yeah, and and lessons learned from those fights, which is a very very unique way of of sort of teaching this self defense or fight you know idea or strategy, and um, the thing that sort of because you know I I grew up in, in the seventies eighties nineties as you know watched the first UFC I was aware of the the um, uh, uh, Gracie's prior to that and Danny and Santo and Jeet Kundo and all that stuff. And um, sorry, I'm trying to get my point here. Um, so Jeet Kundo takes the best of everything, but, but they're talking about the best technique, right? Or the best, or they try to, but it seems like more what you're doing is not just training technique, but teaching situation. Like in, in that, you have to train in a variety of situations like techniques become i don't know uh, um, redundant at a certain point but but you have to be capable in a lot of different situations well yeah you, you, you know what, what you do when it's 17 degrees outside and icy or a snowbank or you're in the jungles of panama are going to be two completely different things even if it's trying to throw a three-point combination how you stand, how you position yourself, you know, what, what type of clothing you should wear. Yeah, it, it all plays a part. But the the more important aspect is these three toolboxes, right? Uh, you know, we put 10 bullet points in each one. It, it's, it's the mindset's more about uh, instead of wasting time on lagging indicators, you you screwed up this, you didn't do that right, you, you know, which you know, you've trained, you hear it all the time, right? We don't focus on that. We focus on what right. you're doing right. And, but without feeling guilt or shame or anything weird like that, you can look back into this box and say, and, and realize, well, you know, there's three areas that I can improve on, but there's seven other areas that I haven't even trained on. Right. So, so, and then that's layered through the environment and the technical, you know, so, it, it, it has so many layers of, of uh, ways to enhance your, your personal min mindset and, and capability, you know, with simple techniques that uh, will really allow you to walk down the street with a, a good feeling about yourself in a, in a pretty short amount of time. And, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, look, I'm a huge, huge Bruce Lee fan. I'm a huge Muhammad Ali fan, mm -hmm. you know, I don't believe in their politics or whatever, you know, but uh, the truth is, you know, he revolutionized boxing with footwork. Uh, Bruce Lee's footwork is, he, you know, like in uh, the, the movie Return of the Dragon with him and uh, Chuck Norris in the, in the Rome Coliseum, you know, he starts dancing around and stuff. Uh, but in all of his Jeet Kune Do patterns in his book, that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And he's using the one inch punch. That one inch punch is all angular momentum. It's just pow, it's an explosion, you know? Uh, but it's so linear and your power side is up front. I would challenge it to these days and saying, Hey, there's a lot of gaps here. You know, uh, there was a guy, if he's on tonight, he knows who he is, who is a big Jeet Kune Do guy that, when we was in Panama many years ago, wanted to spar with me and I knocked him out. Uh, and he was very good and he was more physically fit than I was. He was a monster athlete and he was deadly serious, but you know, 
he, he didn't do well once you penetrated that strong side and work hook or angular, you know, techniques. It just offensively, it's, it's, it's a good system with the straight blast and stuff. It's pretty effective, but, but it, I think could reevaluate some of its defensive strategies, you know, mm -hmm. Jim, tell us, uh, you know, the, about your book. Um, I, I like want you to tell us about the, the content, you know, somebody opens up page one, you know, what is the, the, the format of this book? What are people going to take away from it? So the book itself um, starts, the it, it, book is written, uh, I have 10 fight stories. Because mm -hmm. people will remember the fight in, including stories. Including the GB club story is in there. Including the GB one. So there's 10 fight stories. And we have restructured the technical fight principles. So there are 10 more understandable, digestible, pragmatic fight principles. But yet all the older ones, we still pay homage to the history and who brought this to to the where it is today right and uh but now it's still there but it's more digestible and i have 10 street fighting tenants and then we have the toolkit right the uh, you know the 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 tools to develop with is you're not going to learn how to kick a punch in from this book you're going to learn how to establish the foundation for anything that you're currently doing you know American karate, jiu-jitsu, boxing, taekwondo, you know, it doesn't matter. This this framework, you could technically, if you ran a karate club today or you were in a, a Krav Maga you know, course, you could rip these technical fight principles out, put them in a fishbone outline, stick them on a poster on your wall, and it can become your Bible that you can dive back into for the gospel about what makes this technique really work? What's going to bring life to it, you know, in the real fight? And and that's the purpose behind the book is is to 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 start refocusing how we perceive and think about training to make what we do real, you know, because there's so many karate guys. No disrespect, they're very very good, quality human beings that can literally walk into the the worst side of the Bronx and get their butt whooped in, in about two seconds. And I'm not talking about people that train that have had previous street fights or a lot of your, you know, UFC mixed martial arts guys that are banging it up every day or pro boxers, but even they can get in trouble pretty fast, you know, because the streets are different. And let me, I mean, I think that that was one of the real strengths of the book was that, you had all these practical examples, you know, this happened in a bar, this happened in a club. I got, you know, you square off in the book with other Green Berets, pro football players, uh, who else? Um, some huge guy jumps you at the parking lot out behind Rick's lounge and you ended up gouging his eyeball. And I mean, there's just some crazy shit in there, getting beer bottles smashed over your head and your face sliced off. And, and there's some like, I mean, there, there's stuff in there about uh, you and Dale Comstock out, you know, beating some ass out in a bar one night. Yeah. Um, I want to hit you up about like some of the concepts that are in your book. And like you mentioned it before a little earlier, I'd like to hear you expound on it. What is fight confusion? Uh, you know, that's it's funny. There are a few things that keep coming back from 
uh, very experienced fighters that I've spoken to about this book. And I mean, they're really, really mm -hmm. quality guys and to a point where some of them, some of them actually do understand what fight confusion is. And they were like, just thrilled that I, I put it out there because, you know, conceptually they felt like people wouldn't understand that, mm -hmm. but it, you know, a fight is chaos. It's extreme violence. Uh, First and foremost, nobody's perfect. You know, perfect punches, perfect this, perfect position. And even if they were, they're not going to be perfect all the time. Uh, when a fight begins, a real fight, if it's not going your way, I like to mix things up. And there's a lot of ways you can do it technically with your hands or movement by, you know, slapping a guy in the face, uh, by changing your timing and rhythm on the inside head butting and, and little, switching little up uh, ch changing your lead hand right that was another thing you mentioned yeah i use a switch up not to really change the hand but to close a gap uh you know okay. i'll do it i'll do what they call crash the party if things ain't going wrong i'll just switch up bang and i'll frame and just <laughs> run right into them i'll do what they you know sacrifice throws you know sacrifice myself but there's there's a real hard solid case defense built in when i do these things doesn't mean i'm not going to get injured or cut it means i'm not going to get knocked out you're not going to break anything and i'm taking away my center line all this vulnerable soft underbelly when i crash into you and i'm at the same time exposing theirs so it, it, the difference in 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 a in a simple term jack would be if for example I'm going to counter your punch and I allow you to punch to try to block it and counter, right? Versus when I see your initial motion, I just step straight into it. You know, so as soon as your body starts to move, you just crash in. It's going to, you know, disrupt your thinking and put you on the defense automatically, even if you're having offensive mindset. You're, you're playing catch up in the first second of the fight. And that can fuses the mind is that like you know the yip man you know attack a punch with a punch attack a kick with a kick i don't think so um not completely no uh i, I think that's more of a blocking and checking thing and trapping deal um uh, which in theory isn't that confusing you know it's just uh aggravate <laughs> jim can you define uh framing up for people who don't understand that yeah. terminology what framing yeah what what framing means so or what creating a frame yeah so framing is not an original term but i call it a fight fighting frame so with, with me it's a little bit different uh but one thing when you frame you never cross your hands like this because you can get pinned you know but whether i'm moving left or right my hands are going to be so they can move so I can pendulum block, strike the nuts, bang. But when you frame the shoulder, the hand and the jaw come together, because I can use this body to still work with elbows, hands, hammer, fists, head, butts, knees, and I can protect everything down my center line. But what's really important in the frame is that this, this motion here by the jaw, it, it immobilizes your head so that you don't get this, coup counter coup where the head moves and the brain catches up so even if you get hit or cut you're still in the fight uh you, you know your your lower body is going to be 
somewhere between 50-50 and a slightly pressed forward because of the constant forward pressure. Because uh, you can fight going backwards. The biggest concern is getting your front leg taken out by a Muay Thai guy or a sweeper. But uh, the, 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 there's a counter for that as well built in. But that's stuff we teach along the way. But the frame, when somebody comes out, you can actually rake. I call raking, you know, their, their, their offense straight down, bang, like this. You can step in, go to the nuts, make them pike the hips, head, butt, bang, hammer, fist, hit the carotid, you know, or strike the eyes, you know, really simply. But uh, Now, yeah. for those of you who are listening on the podcast, uh, you make sure that you, you check out our YouTube video, at least for this segment, because Jim is demonstrating it. Um, is that, is that hand that, is that high side hand, is that preloaded for you, Jim? Is that, is that loaded for a strike or is that, are you looking for that or? Both hands are loaded for a strike and a block. So I can block a strike just like that. So if okay. I can come in, plus when you're here, you can also pop up, use your elbows, forearms. You can rake the eyes. I mean, it sets you up for a whole lot of stuff. And I know you're going to have some, some really experienced mixed martial arts go, oh, I'll just put a triangle choke on them. Trust me, those elbows and headbutts and no growing strikes. Remember, this is a no rules game. It's real defense. So, Jim, you uh, you really need to start making, if not, I mean, I guess instructional DVDs are a thing of the past, but start making instructional videos streamed on on the internet or something. Start demonstrating some of these techniques and getting the word out there. Yes, um, I'm, I'm doing a film shoot in the next couple of within sixty days. We're working on a time okay. now. So yeah. What is initial timing speed? Oh, it's, it's basically how quick you go from zero to 60. If, if I'm punching my hand in and out like this, mm -hmm. this is kind of miles per hour speed. If my whole body is frozen up like this and all of a sudden it just moves, that initial move, that takeoff is the initial timing speed. How fast you take off from, you know, from, from zero to, you know, your maximum speed. Uh, and, and I tell you, that's critical to a real fight because, you, you know, also you can break your timing up, like, like it's called broken rhythm timing. So you can shake it, you know, you can go from fast to slow to boom and just break up the rhythm. It also creates more fight confusion, but you can get your whole body into it. You know, it's like a, I call it plyometric striking. So I'm usually punching upward and out i'm using that plyometric uh, otherwise or i'm going to use gravity fed punches where my right foot may just may lighten up my left foot while i drive off the back and, and bend my knees just drop my whole body weight into the punch pow you know so there's tons of power in these punches i mean i've knocked out so many people because right. it's the way i learned the concept uh fire first so a lot of guys, you see this with males all the time, young males especially, like the bow up, getting each other's chest to chest, having words with one another, you know, or come up, one guy pushes the other guy, the other dude pushes back because neither of them, you know, deep down really want to get punched in the face. And then it goes to fist to cuffs. You know, the, you know, one of the stories in your books, a guy who calls himself Ice Pick, has his hands <laughs> in his pockets, comes up to you, and he's yeah. just... He starts taking his hands out of his pockets and you're like, you know what? Fuck this. And just fucking throw down and, and do them right there. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not even waiting for you to pull this bullshit on me. What is, what do you mean when you say fire first? Fire first. I mean, you have to develop a, I call it spider senses. It, you, you know, when, it, when a threat is for real and it's imminent and look, 
I could have been off the mark with ice pick, but when a guy walks up to you, blocks your path, he's got his two wing men with him, his hands are in his mm -hmm. pocket. And he says something to me, you're Jim West, you're the karate guy, blah, blah, whatever. And I said, well, who are you? And he says, they call me ice pick. And he starts to pull his hands out of his pocket. I'm going to fire his ass up, <laughs> you know, because he's not going to stick me with that damn ice pick. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was pretty good though. Uh, Cause I folded him up, reached over, pulled his sweater over his head and kneed him in the face a few times and sidestepped his two buddies and walked between two cars and created a funnel. So like dummies, they, they got in a straight line and as I hit one, he fell backwards and fell over the other one. Then they all get up and run. But, uh, you know, you can control your environment pretty easy. You know, you just have to know what, you know, I watch people uh, online, these, you know, telling ladies that when you walk into a parking lot at Walmart to stay in the open spaces and shit, somebody sweep by and pick you right up. You know, uh, I like to walk by the cars because those cars, you can create a funnel and get mm -hmm. yourself aligned a specific way that you can actually, if you have a, one of these or one of those, you know, or mace, you know, just make sure you point it in the right direction. Uh, 50% of the people who use mace squirt themselves in the face. Um, uh, their own self, you know, by accident, but, but yeah, I always uh, preach to people, you use your environment and terrain. And yeah, if you were on a patrol, would you want to be out in an open field? Nope. No, not at all. Yeah. but the, I mean, the Jim West methodology is like, Hey, if you're at the bar and dude's just sizing you up for too long, fuck this, like, just do it. Just do it right there. Take the initiative. You know, I had a, I had a girl ask me one time, many, many years ago, she was one of my karate students. She says, how do you know when to hit someone? What's the best time to hit somebody? I said, when they're running their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> the jaws loose, you know, you're going to break their jaw. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's like uh, the James Bond villain. He's telling you everything he's about to do. So I look at it like this. This is my space. You know, everything within these two arms is my, my space my livelihood it, as, as someone gets closer and closer and closer to you, their hands disappear, mm -hmm. you know, cause they, you can only see, you know, mm -hmm. so far, uh, they say 180, maybe more if you train, but when we're chest to chest and nose to nose, you can't see those hands. And remember my experiences. I mean, uh, when Dennis got stabbed that night in the GB club, he was nose to nose with the guy. Yeah. He never saw that knife coming. If, if, I mean, if you can't be willing to sacrifice your own security because somebody wants to threaten you or run their mouth, I mean, you, to me, you have to take all threats seriously. Uh, beware that, you know, don't throw them on the ground, start stomping on them, do your damage and quit, you know, because uh, legally you could be held accountable for being excessive, right? So, you know, you have to have a measured response, but make it real, you know, and that's one of the things that we, uh, work towards uh do you also how do you respond to somebody taking an interview position if, if you you know with you you know uh because that's that's an interview position can be a very offensive position but but well hidden do you do you treat that as a threat also i i do i i, I treat everything as a threat <laughs> it's, it, yeah like you like you said early in the uh, podcast it's not what i am it's who i am yeah. You know, and uh, 
any anytime anybody looks and leans towards me, gets in my space, whatever, I just I'll even ask them. I'll put my hand. I say, please, uh, you know, just let's take a step back, or I'll step back. And if they pursue, then you know the warning's already been given. You know, so yeah. I don't feel guilty if I lay them out. Now, have you ever legally been in trouble for any of your first strikes or or anything like that? And how did you deal with it? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> In in the old days, that you know, today you can get arrested for spitting on the sidewalk. You know, uh, when I first joined the army, went to Fort Bragg, uh, they were they were running uh, paddy wagons every hour up and down, you know, Hay Street. Yeah, Hay Street back in the day. They just putting people in a paddy wagon and taking them down to correctional confinement, and letting you paint rocks and carry logs around for two weeks. You know, didn't even bust you. You know, but uh, um, so I, yeah, I got in a few things. Like I got in a a real bad, a, a nasty fight at Pope Air Force Base is not in the book. Um, I thought someone hit my brother in the mouth. That's what I said, oh, your brother's over there. And there's a big fight. Everyone's fighting. Little did I know the fight started outside the bar, migrated itself inside. There's all kinds of people like a, like a movie scene. And uh, I made my way over to the bar and my brother's sitting there and he's holding some guy over the bar by his throat. And it looked like his chin was split open. I'm like, Oh, who did that? And he goes, he did. Don't worry about it. And I go, whop, and hit the guy. And this, this security cop grabs me by the neck and pulls me back against the wall. And when he grabbed me, I put my hook in here, and I grabbed him by the balls, and I'm twisting. And he's like, hey, you got my balls. Let go. You got my balls. And I'm like, you got my throat. Let go. You got my throat. And so, so you know, obviously, he let go. And I turned around, whop, and hit him. I didn't know he was an SP. But when I hit him, <laughs> he went down the wall, and his hat fell on my arm, that white cap. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm in trouble. So I, here comes the other guys, like the Keystone cops. And I threw my hands up in the air and uh, they took me outside, no handcuffs, just like Rick's Lounge, no handcuffs, you know? And uh, as I'm, so as I'm walking outside, I can't remember the first guy I hit. I had a few adult beverages and there was a guy that had obviously been in another fight, but I thought it was one I was in. He was being treated at the cop car by an EMT and I looked over there and he called me an asshole. So I, I moved the EMT and kicked him in the face and the cops started to run me down. I looked up and I saw the original guy and he started running and I started chasing him. The cops were chasing me and I grabbed him and wrestled him down. I'm hitting him and trying to get, make, get the best I could. And the cops were hitting me in the back of it with a stick and I'm trying to lift me off of him. And I lost my grip and this is a true story guys. So I didn't, I wasn't finished. And I used to be an angry young man. I, I locked my hands. I pulled him cause you know, cause they were, had my feet all up in the air trying to, you know, trying to like pulling a pit bull off of you. And I literally bit two plugs out of him and uh, the cops weren't real happy about that. So they arrested me for maiming. And uh, so they took me down to the uh, police station, the, the SP station. I'm sitting there and they, had a whole room full of other people in there all for fighting. And I could see out of my door and to the desk sergeant's uh, office and they brought some guy in there and took the handcuffs off and the guy grabbed the scissors, jumped over the desk and tried to kill the desk sergeant. And so they started beating him in the head and face with those uh, billy clubs. And they looked back and they saw me and the guy walks back over to me and he goes, did you see that? And I said, see what? And they took the cuffs off and, told me to get out of there. So I just left, you know, so it was pretty easy to handle. They, all Wild West days were a lot different, you know. Uh, one of the stories in the book was the uh, 
Applebee's story, you know, that was just one punch, one and done. And but the guy went out and they busted his skull open. So they, the manager said he was going to call the cops. Cops showed up. I didn't do anything excessive. I just hit him one time, uh, gave him my ID card. They reviewed the security cameras, came back, asked me if <laughs> they're wrapping this guy up like the mummy. And I asked me if I wanted to press charges. And I'm like, well, no, I don't want anything to do with any of this guy. So uh, they let me go. But then uh, I made sure that the cops, you know, just thinking ahead were, you know, probably going to wait outside knowing I've been drinking. So I, you know, sat there, got myself a coffee, some water, waiting. This other guy comes over. He actually recognized me from working down south in the black ghillie suits, uh, which is really weird. That's Aberdeen Proving Grounds. And he said, you're that guy. And I'm like, oh, my God. So he says, look, these cops are waiting on you outside. Let me give you a ride home. So, you know, teaming and uh, partnering up with the right people is always good, too. I love that story in the book uh, where, uh, you know, dude smashes a beer bottle over your head and you start just waving your head. I have AIDS. I have AIDS. I have AIDS. <laughs> and there's blood going all over the bar. Well, the cop asked me, to, you know, he, he he's, you know, I had my face was cut open. I had the end of my nose, my cheek cut open, 26 stitches over my eye. And so, you know, the head bleeds, I have blood going everywhere. And the cop's like, ah, you know, he was all nervous and stuff. And he says, you outside. And I'm like, and I looked around, it's payday night in Fayetteville, North, you know, Fort Bragg. It's just everybody's packed in there trying to either be a part of the fight or look at it. And I said, I got this. I started shaking my head back up. I got AIDS and, you know, blood was going everywhere. It looked like Moses part in the Red Sea. I look back to cops 20 feet away. I said, I'm joking. I don't have AIDS. And you know, so, so, you know, we went outside. And, uh, but, but not before you, you uppercutted the guy that instigated all that shit. Yeah. He was standing right outside the door. Uh, and he kind of got off the hook early, uh, unlike the other guys. And, uh, as my right foot crossed the threshold, he's leaning on the wall like this. And as soon as my foot hits the ground, I hear this, I saw him in my peripheral vision. And the cop was behind me, the detective, and he goes, there's that asshole. And I just, <laughs> I just dipped down. I did a 180 and came, you know, like an arm wrestler right up under his chin, took his feet off the ground. He went straight down. I actually hit him so hard. It dislocated his brainstem. Wow. Dis dislocated his brainstem. Yeah. He's in a wheelchair today. Wow. Uh, I think we probably already covered it at this point, but another concept in your book, go ugly early. Go ugly early. Make it, <laughs> make it dirty. You know, remember there are no rules in a street fight, in a real fight, right? So if, if you know, you size up the situation, you know, you think that, hey, look, I, I'm going to get my tail whooped here. Uh, going ugly early is pouring beer in their face, spitting in their face, clawing the eyes, biting them, you know, whatever it takes to, to make some space and some room for you to either continue to eliminate the threat in front of you and around you, or to get yourself to a safe space. But going ugly early creates fight confusion, puts your attacker on the immediate defense and allows you an opportunity to, to live, to tell your stories another day. There, there's also, I mean, <laughs> a lot of room for deception. I, I have a buddy who acted like he was going to throw up right before a fight, like throw up on the guy and the guy kind of back wheel, like the guy was all up on him. And, you know, then all of a sudden when my buddy started to kind of throw up the guy back wheeled and 
you know, my buddy used that as his opportunity. <laughs> yeah, you know, that that's that's cool. But if somebody's doing this stuff, you either need to turn and turn and leave, you know, create real space yeah. or knock him out out. I mean, I hit a guy in Fayetteville one night so hard his head bounced off the wall and it was all full of food and fat and you know, he was being really bad and uh, he was going to beat me up and cut me with a hawk bill. And uh, I hit him and his head bounced off the wall. And you probably know when you get a concussion, you throw up a lot of times. Yeah. And I go, boom. And he goes, whoa, projectile vomited all over me. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. You know, fortunately he went face down because I didn't want to fight after that. <laughs> I wanted to go take a shower. Yeah. Uh, there are so many uh, fucking insane stories in this book. Uh, I really hope that a lot of people will go out there and pick it up. Uh, it's pretty much all I uh, had planned for this episode. I mean, Dave, if you have any questions, shoot them out. Jim, if there's anything at all I failed to cover that you think we should mention on this show, um, you know, guys, bring it up. Uh, we have a couple more questions that I want to get to. Uh, Zach, thank you very much. Um, at Jack, is that a hennepin? I saw earlier. No, no. Oh my gang. <laughs> oh my gang. Um, I, I don't want to ask what that what that is on the can. <laughs> it's a cock, Jim. A cock. <laughs> it's a co you know, you know what one of those is, right? Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not a child-friendly uh, channel. Um, DJ, uh, great episode, guys. Thank you very much for the donation, DJ. Uh, Bricktop Medic, thank you very much for the donation. We really appreciate it. Um, Alex Bennett, uh, what martial art would be most effective for a five-foot, four-inch guy? So, uh, Jim, I, I know we're talking about kind of a best system, but are there systems that are suited for people of various sizes, people of various genders, like... Uh, no, uh, I, I think I think knowing how to work with what you have is is crucial. Uh, a short guy has a lot of advantages. He just needs to know how to use them. Uh, if if for example, if a guy's punching down and he doesn't know how to take advantage of gravity, then he actually loses power punching down. Uh, if a guy's shorter and he's coming up and he's on the inside, then he's going to cut off a lot of the the, the quality punches the taller guys throwing and you're going to deliver more power plyometrically coming up from the ground because you got your leg strength working behind those punches i mean i i train with roger dabney all the time he's a shorter guy 10th degree black belt i've known him since he was 16 he's fought for world titles and he's tough on the inside i, I don't mind him on the outside but he works his way in and he just bombs you with these monster punches on the inside because uh, that's where he's comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, once you get inside of a guy's reach, if he's not really schooled on knees and elbows and how to use Mother Nature, gravity, and his body, uh, they become an easy target for a shorter guy. So don't say, hey, I'm short. I'm going to lose every fight because that's certainly not true. <laughs> uh, you know, it, and speak of deception, you know, once you're up close on a guy, you have more leverage and, and he's going to not see a lot of what you're doing. You know, just, uh, it, yeah, don't, don't worry about being short. Just learn how to maximize your, your power. Um, excellent. Uh, I think that's the last of those. Um, what's the uncanny valley effect? Damn. That's a good one. It's a bad one. This is actually very excellent. I'll try to, um, 
I try to shy away from that one because I'm doing something with it now. Uh, we, can, the, we can skip it. No, 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 no. It's no. in the book. It's, it's in there. The book. It's there. You can look. It's uh, so this Japanese roboticist, you know, back in the early 70s, 60s, whatever, he uh, tried to get robots. You know how you see these robotic dogs and people trying to walk and, you mm -hmm. know, he, he tried to get robots to move like human beings. And it looks you know, really weird. And right. So, you know, they're walking and your mind's adjusting to, to the fact that, well, I can see him walking. And then when they say he turns, he does that quick robotic movement. Even, you know, he just turned, he moved and he get these funky movements. Your mind knows exactly what's going on, but it's very uncanny. It's almost eerie when you look at it, especially up close. You hear me talking about working inside the box and Jack, uh, you, you, you asked questions. You kind of pinpointed a few things like this, the frame and also this uh, initial timing speed and broken rhythm timing. These are the key ingredients of how to work inside the box and create an uncanny valley effect. I can take any one of your listeners today and I would willingly do it on film, Jack, with, with you guys. And within less than an hour, I'd say within 30 minutes, have anyone, any male, female, old, young, be able to affect this uncanny valley effect in a fighting term to, to take out an opponent with five to seven punches in less than two seconds. And all of them hit the uh, vulnerable areas of the body. And at the very same time, you eliminate your, your soft spots. So this is something I, I've trained hard and long on and so, uh, I can make it work for anyone. So in, a, in essence, are you saying that uncanny valley effect is sort of like creating an awkward fighter? It, it, because, you know, sometimes people go, well, they're really awkward to fight because of what not, is that essentially not, it? Or no, something else? no, it creates an eerie, it creates an eerie, almost uncanny feeling. And so you're, you know, psychologically, your brain is suddenly playing catch up because even though you see what's in front of you, it doesn't register in the same part of the mind. So mm -hmm. it's like you're, 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 you speak of fight confusion, you're going, I know I just saw what I saw, but how did that happen? You know, and it's happening so fast that your mind never has an opportunity to catch up. And I could teach anybody that in a day. Jim, everybody who is watching uh, and will watch, I'm sure will go, okay, I want to, I want to train with Jim West. How do I do that? I, if people want to train with you, how would they do that? Be patient. <laughs> uh, for the next couple of months, there's a few things that are going on. Uh, I'm, I'm working on some programs with uh, three other people right now. And there, there's, it's, we're going to introduce something that's never been done the way we plan to introduce it. And so I can't speak to the, those aspects. And while this is going on, I'm also still rehabbing, you know, last year I, I got seven new screws in my humerus in my shoulder and they had to reconnect my bicep and re, you know, it's working pretty good right now, but I still have some impingements. I, it's good enough to teach by, but, you know, I'm a very hands-on guy, right, Jack? Uh, I noticed. So uh, I like to have my tools. And, and frankly, you know, all this 
technical stuff is really nice. And just to be able to deliver a, a really powerful for a short guy, an overhand right, right up close and in your face where you just devastate your opponent with one shot. Uh, it looks simple, but there are a lot of little pieces that move to get you to that spot, that perfect spot in time. And uh, we're working on all that stuff, you know, and my right hand, that overhand right's been my juice for since I was 110 pounds, you know, so I'm frustrated. But but if you want to train with me, uh, I will give coaching and advice now, uh, but hands-on, you may have to travel to me or we could work out travel arrangements and time for me to go different places. Uh, and we'd really have to do a, a saturation session over maybe a two or three day weekend. And if they wanted to do something remote or whatever, how would they reach out to you? Um, I would say go out to, uh, I tell you, I'll give you my, the, my, one of my emails, James smoky West at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, Jack, you want to yeah. put that? Well, okay. We yeah, we'll, yeah, we put it up on uh, on the description later on uh, to get in touch with them. And also we'll put the link to Jim's book, his new book, A Mind for the Fight, American Extension Fighting, an Evolutionary Mindset and Systems-Focused Approach Towards a Unified Skill Set for Self-Defense, Street Survival, and Combat Sports Excellence. That's the name of Jim's new book. Um, like I said, I finished it yesterday. Uh, you know, Dave is piling through it. I, it's really good. It's really yeah, good. I'll, I'll promise you that this will, will be different than anything you've ever read about yeah. self-defense or martial arts or hand-to-hand. Like it, it's, it, it is completely different than, than anything that you've been used to. I have to give kudos to uh, my co-writer, Justin McCauley. Mm -hmm. uh, his dad was a tier one operator on Dale Comstock's team. Uh, super, super guy. And Justin really, did a did a terrific job with the book. He really did. Yes. The work he had to put in and put up with me because I'm such a nitpicky kind of guy. First, the book had to read like I wrote it. Uh, I had to, you know, and I have a lot to do with it. All the evolutionary mindset techniques and 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 principles are come directly from me. But but Justin's ability to, I mean, because Jack, you've known me for years, to pull out of my head and put it in writing. <laughs> is nearly impossible and just as the first like guy said, is in, in person your instruction is top notch but to put it on a paper yeah it, it took justin to do that and to do and to do justice to it yeah because he was one of my seven-year-old black belts mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh he went full circle his dad went to 10th group he went from delta 10th group went to germany Justin's growing up. He, he's done martial arts his entire life. He's 34 now. Uh, he's went to Dubai for a number of years, like six years. He's trained in Austria. He's, he's trained with top, you know, tier one athletes and fighters for his entire life. And he's so obsessed with martial arts. Not only does he train, he evaluates, he breaks down fighters all the time, you know, does analysis. I mean, he lives and breathes it every day of his life. And because of what I instilled in him when he was seven years old. It shows. And, 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 and uh, now he's really, I wish you were here today because he's uh, so thrilled to be working with me again. 
and closing the loop on the stuff, you know, the, the special sauce that seemed to be missing the gaps. And uh, he has an awesome way of learning. So he's, he's good, you know, and, and he's also got a degree in journalism. So he knows how to extract that information. <laughs> no, he, he did a great job with it. Um, so guys, go pick up Jim's book. Uh, for all of you who joined us live tonight, thank you so much for watching the show. I hope you uh, really enjoyed it. Um, if you can, you know, please give us a little thumbs up, you know, like the video, share it with your friends, uh, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. And if you're interested in supporting the channel uh, financially and, and getting access also to the bonus segments we do with our guests, there's a link down in the description to our Patreon page. And after this is over, I'll also put the link to uh, Jim's new book in there as well. So we'll be back with Jim for our Patreon supporters in a few minutes to talk about his time on Greenlight. Um, and next episode, so it'll be what, episode 45? Um, we were going to have an FBI and CIA historian on who's a uh, pretty preeminent, pre you know, uh, guy in his field. Um, but because of everything going on in the world, we had to delay that. He'll be on in the fall. Uh, so the guy who came out and bailed our ass out of the fire, uh, I reached out to an old friend of mine. Um, me and this guy go way back. We went through SFAS together. We were in the Q course together. We were in fifth group together. Um, and he just got out of the army a couple of years ago. So he's going to come on. He's got all kinds of great stories. We're gonna, we'll are gonna we have a really good time next episode wrapping with him. Uh, and so that's a, about it for this show. So thanks, everybody. Thank you, Jim, for uh, you know spending your time with us tonight. Yeah, it's thanks. a pleasure. You, yeah, you guys are always great, man. I, I, I'm here for you. And you know, hopefully the uh, people help you out and keep the show running, man, because uh, and, and they're treating us well. Hey, guys, with our Patreon, it's yeah. it, small as a dollar a month. It keeps us uh, and you get access to amazing content that you don't see anywhere else uh you know inside stories personal stories jim's going to tell us about his green light the time with green light teams which are jumping tactical nukes into, <laughs> into countries so not just, not just jumping diving diving yeah. bringing tactical so it's 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 worth hearing about we're just hardcore just a delivery system and and please uh share this video if any of you are on hand-to-hand -hand blogs martial art blogs yeah military spec ops blogs, whatever. Jim is truly somebody, he, it's living history. He's somebody who needs to be heard. He's I mean, one of the OGs. I, I do have to uh, put kudos out to a few guys like George Clark and uh, Dave Coase. They, if you don't mind, they're uh, friends mm -hmm. of mine. Remember uh, the fight I got into where I stuck my finger in the big guy's eye in the park? Yeah, yeah. Last time I saw them was all the way back then. Oh, and, really? And, and they've come back online and they've been training with, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Smith, Bob Wall, you know, Norris, uh, Jim Hartley, he's listening tonight. Yeah, the heartless one. Uh, these are all legends of martial arts and they have uh, invited me into their family uh, and, and cool. embra embraced it. And I'll tell you, it's a, it was a big gap in my life for the last 30 years. So, you know, uh, George and Jim and all you guys, I just want to thank you. I know you're listening now, but uh, man, it, it means the world to me that you've invited me into your, uh, your inner circle. So I just want to thank you guys That's as well. So. You deserve it, Jim. 100%. Yeah. And what, one final sidebar, the guy who designed the original logo for American Extension Fighting was a previous <laughs> guest on this show, George Hand, who is Where's, a student of yours. Where's George? <laughs> he's yeah. Oh, he's out there. He's out there. He lives in Albuquerque now. Yeah. Uh, so thank you guys. And we will see you next Friday. So take care, everybody. Peace.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.